Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, ExpressVPN, Best Fiends, The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we took you to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, where we shared as much as we could with you about two attempts by Queen Elizabeth I to establish a foothold in the New World after King Philip II of Spain had already done so in Florida. The first of these two attempts failed after a year of trying events and mismanaged relationships with the Native Americans indigenous to the area. The survivors from that attempt returned to England empty-handed. The second try failed as well, but the why of that failure is an enduring mystery. It's hard to know for sure because when Governor John White returned to check on it after a long three-year absence that he was forced to endure, the second colony was gone. While some people actually consider this mystery solved, the reality is not only is it not conclusively solved at all, it may never be without the aid of a time machine. What happened to the lost colony of Roanoke? Did they die of starvation? Were they absorbed into the local Native American population? Numerous archaeological digs at multiple locations have failed to turn up anything more than a possibly Elizabethan trinket here and there one that is often undateable. Like many great legends that we've covered in the past, this one has a carved stone in it too, the Dare Stone. That could warrant two episodes of our show alone. Let's return to Roanoke. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. No European who has tasted savage life can afterwards bear to live in our societies. Benjamin Franklin, as cited by Andrew Lawler on page 330 of his book, The Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and the Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Join us tonight for part two, the final part of our series on the lost colony of Roanoke. And we're self-quarantined. That we are, and maintaining a minimum safe distance of 2,172 miles from each other. It's pretty good ways, Really? Right? I, I had 2,170. Oh, you did? There might be a, a plus or minus two mile difference in there one way or the other. Yeah, we, we need to get on top of that. That's, uh, we got to make sure we're accurate <laughs> there. Well, obviously, a lot of you no longer have a commute, but we're hoping we can still keep you entertained. We want to let you know that we have no plans as of now to change our regular show schedule, and we're happy to report that no one in our organization is currently under the weather. That said, we do have some sponsors shifting things around, delays to when commercials are running and stuff like that which is, of course, completely understandable on their part. We're not sure how that's all going to shake out for our bottom line in the long run, but so far, it's fine. The economy is obviously of great concern for all of us, not just our sponsors, but for you guys as well. So all we can do is modestly ask you to support our sponsors when you can. So we can keep doing this, and as we always say, keep the lights on in blankets for Tiana. Oh, you put an S on there, yes. plural. Yes, you're right. There are two Blanket Fortianas now. Yes, Blankets Fortiana, which is the proper way to share that. We've actually <laughs> internally named these a while back. Uh, we have Blanket Fortiana West, or BFW, where Forrest That's is. That's right. Yes, in Los Angeles. And then Blanket Fortiana East, 
or BFE, where I am in Greensboro, <laughs> North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. You know that means something else, right? In, yes, in I know. Urban I, slang I, I was going to throw that joke okay. away. Just let the adults get the joke for, you know. <laughs> well, um, you're not that far out in the sticks. No, no, uh, no. Maybe one really. day when I'm in my uh, manifesto shack, uh, we can actually swap the initials there. That's right, Forrest. You are looking at manifesto shacks now, right? You can order those online, I think. You're right. But <laughs> contractually, I, uh, I have to come up with a manifesto first. And then you also need like 100 acres to put it out in the middle of with no driveways. That's true. Yes, it's a hike in. It's kind of like finding the bet sphere. You're going to have to march <laughs> out to from the road and people think like, well, that thing just rolled off from the road off of a VW uh, micro bus and uh, 20 miles into the woods. So yes. I want it to be at least that difficult. So if I find anything, I can claim that like, well, no, this didn't just fall off a truck and into my front yard. There you go. But yes, that leads into a more important point in that our priority here is to keep producing shows for everybody as much as we can with, as Scott said, maybe a little bit of adjustment here and there, but we're going to try our best. So speaking of which, I almost hesitate to ask, but what is happening with your Outer Banks trip? Canceled. They've, uh... <laughs> <laughs> They've canceled the Outer Banks. Oh, no. <laughs> no, actually, it's in Dare County, named for Miss Virginia Dare. That's right. Who we'll talk about yeah. tonight. And Dare County said, look, if you don't live here, you can't come here. So uh, my trip is unfortunately rain-checked. That said, I am still super excited to go, like almost more so now because they're not yeah. allowing me to. And mm. I also want to give a personal shout out to Andy at Corolla Jeep Adventures, who very graciously offered me and my family the full tilt boogie tour of all things Outer Banks-ish when we come. So I'm going to take a rain check on that, Andy. Thank you so much for your email, man. I really appreciate that. And sorry I hadn't written you back. We've been a little underwater here. <laughs> That's probably not the best choice of words for the Outer Banks, but uh, you know what oh, I mean. So anyway, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Hey, it's not a hurricane right now. It's a... Um, That's true. It's a, uh, I'm not can't think of a good word to make up about um, coronavirus. Well, you're right. I'm glad that there's also not a weather catastrophe on top of all that. Yeah, me too. But I will say that horrible sea conditions just around that area will also figure prominently in tonight's part two. So we got a lot to talk about tonight. So let's dive back down into that rabbit hole. All right, now it's time to talk about what happened after... White sailed away, he just sailed away from his daughter and three-year-old granddaughter, potentially. And I mean, this story just unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. And again, I want to give a shout out to Andrew Lawler, who wrote The Secret Token. For us, this is something I've been meaning to tell you because I'm the one that read his book while you were doing other research for us. This guy, we need to hire him because the end of every <laughs> single chapter is the ultimate cliffhanger sentence. You cannot put this book mm. down because you, you get down to the end and he's like, well, nobody's ever done that before. Good thing I was about to. And it's like, how can you not turn the page? But then the research is also really deep, too. And the other thing I like about him is that he has a very apolitical perspective on it. He's also got the benefit of looking back on it all these years later and, you know, the current state of race relations, which really comes into play when you think about how this story is looked back upon now after all these hundreds of years. It's been through varying degrees of, oh, well, no, that didn't happen because we don't want that to have happened. Or let's open our minds and say any of this could have happened, regardless of how we all feel about what it signals in the end. It's just amazing. And the way he covers it is really amazing. All the way down to him going down to... uh the islands and being there for some of their local celebrations at the end of the year and that sort of stuff. Just fascinating stuff. Really fascinating. Yes. And Andrew Lawler was the author of at least two National Geographic articles 
that we're going to be taking a look at. And one of them came out in 2015, and I think the other one in 2018. And I think for one comprehensive look at this whole story and what's also been happening recently with archaeology, he's a great source. And he's one researcher who's followed the whole story in the broad overlook, at least from the very beginnings of the history to what's currently happening on the ground right now as of 2019. And oh, the other thing I wanted to say when you were talking about John White was that he did not want to go and leave his daughter and son-in-law and infant granddaughter. But the colonists persuaded him, look, we are in dire straits. You have to go back to England and petition for help or we're not going to make it. So he reluctantly agreed. And he didn't want to leave them, but he came back. And unfortunately, the soonest he could come back was three years later. Yeah. And then that was fraught with all kinds of terror and mishaps. And I mean, to go from four anchors and anchor lines down to one on the graveyard of the Atlantic, which of course they weren't calling it then, but they knew it was treacherous water. I can't see why they would have gotten so afraid because the other thing is when that second to last one broke, the ship drifted and it was just by pure luck that it drifted into deeper water. Had it gone the other way, that would have been the end of them right there. And just the day before that day, I can't remember the people on the ship had watched a bunch of their mates die in the surf. And the impression I got from Lawler was that they were kind of just giving him a ride. So they were probably like, yeah, we're done with this. And, and oh, and that's the other thing I wanted to say. Think about the fear they had when they lost the anchor. They're in these treacherous waters. There's already been stories about the craziness in this new land and specifically this part of it. And all this stuff is happening and sailors are a superstitious lot. They probably wanted to get out of Dodge pretty bad. And he probably didn't have a whole lot of power to keep them there when they didn't immediately find those survivors and then when they started having all those troubles. That also adds to the reason why not a lot of rescue missions were launched or even exploration around the area, even though it was beginning to be populated more and more by Europeans in the 17th century, because one reason is that the sea traffic really declined in the 1600s because the waters around the outer banks were so dangerous. So people just stopped going there. They stopped taking that route that led them nearby Roanoke Island. It just sat there for a long time. Well, it is constantly morphing. It changes all the time just with regular current. And then when you throw storms into the mix, what you find out is that charts are essentially useless. Even in this day and age, they have to be constantly updated. And so if they have some kind of chart that somebody drew even just a few years ago, they could run aground in short order. And then what are you going to say? Oh, the map was wrong. Doesn't matter. You're dead. (laughs) You can be mad about the map all you want. You're drowning. And like you just mentioned, Croatan or Croatone Island changed itself in the 17th century. So the island would be a lot different from those who tried to visit it later on. And that also coincides with the people that were on it and where did they go and how did they morph into the landscape? Yes, and Lawler actually pointed out in his book too how there's lots of inlets on the maps that White drew that aren't there anymore. And to further highlight how much it changes and how rapidly it changes, there was actually an island that formed, it's a mile long, 1.6 kilometers long, right off the coast of the Cape Hatteras National Seashore. They call it Shelly Island. It formed between November of 2016 and July of 2017. This mile long island, just poof, there it was. That's how rapidly it's changing. And it tells you how dangerous it is if you're sailing around there. So this erosion factor also has a lot to do with how difficult the archaeology is around there because that coastline and and all the erosion that's happening has probably washed away a lot of clues that would have helped us nowadays 
to piece this puzzle together, perhaps. No doubt. And in addition to that, there is the frequency and severity of the storms and how often they come through. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example here, and we can dive into the outline after this. But my family has a place at a beach called Kiri Beach. It's K-U-R-E. I know it sounds like Kerr or whatever, but they, it's pronounced <laughs> Kiri by the, all the locals. I think it's a name. And the cottage there is on 3rd Street. But here's the thing. My whole life, it's been on 2nd Street because 1st Street <laughs> vanished and all the houses on, on the other side of it, on the ocean side of it, and all of 1st Street went away with Hurricane Hazel. In 1950-something. Yeah. I can't remember what year. Wow. It, was, it was before my time. But that was a whole street in houses. So 3rd Street is really 2nd Street. There is no 1st Street anymore. It just all around, and that's not even in the Outer Banks. That's further south. Yeah. But still, you get a sense for how much the geography is changing and how hard it probably is to preserve evidence, especially the closer you are to the coast. I believe with Hurricane Emily, some things were revealed because it washed away a lot of the sand and sediment that was hiding some stuff. So let's back up now and take a look at what the contemporary investigations were. That means what was happening with all these players at the time, because what happened to the lost colonists, their story faded from public interest after a while. There weren't many answers. However, people did look into it at the time. It was still a going concern. They wanted to launch and finance more colonization attempts by Europeans and the English specifically into this territory. So they wanted to know what happened to these folks. And as we'll see, there are some business and political reasons to either find out or not find out what happened to them. So if we back up, well, the main player here, Sir Walter Raleigh. What did Sir Walter do about all this? Because it was his going concern and his further concerns about getting more investors to look into the area. Well, Sir Walter, Raleigh that is, he was angling to keep his claim and monopoly on the Virginia Territory, especially when a few years after John White returned, the price of sassafras increased dramatically, believe it or not. Raleigh first sailed across the Atlantic himself to the New World in 1595, five years after the Roanoke colonists were first known to have vanished. And he would later initially claim it was a mission to find the lost colony, this 1595 journey of his. Later, however, he would admit that his real goal was a mission to discover the legendary city of gold, El Dorado, and the search mission was merely a cover story. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with the legend, the legend of El Dorado originally started out as the story of a mythical chief of the indigenous Muisca tribe of Colombia, who was thought by the Spanish to cover himself in gold dust and enter sacred Lake Guatavita during an offering ceremony. The legend over the years turned from being a chief covered in gold to a city of gold, and then eventually to a kingdom adorned with gold. And by Raleigh's time, the location of El Dorado was rumored to be a city named Manoa, next to the mythical lake Parime in South America, and its discovery was Raleigh's actual goal. However, his mission, of course, came up empty-handed, and on his return journey to England, Raleigh sailed past the outer banks of North Carolina, but claimed that bad weather had forced them to proceed without landing. And that might sound like an excuse, but from what we know now, could very well have been a lot of bad weather. It could have been. But as we're going to see, he had reasons not to confirm that the colony was necessarily lost. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, Raleigh would also later claim to launch a search for the lost colony in 1602, when he provided funds for a return expedition to the Outer Banks. But really, his goal was to make a fortune in the sassafras market when prices soared. Now, if you don't know, sassafras is the genus name of a tree that is native to North America and East Asia, and almost every part of it 
has been useful to humans with cooking, medicine, aromatic oils, and its wood is even used for building ships and furniture. So it's a funny name and it's a fun word to say. You may have heard of the soft drink sassafras from the Old West movies when it was used to make traditional root beer. Also, it was once used in Louisiana Creole cooking for gumbo filet. And it was an important natural resource in the European colonization of the Americas, believe it or not. I'd heard of it, of course, and knew that it was harvested, but have just now come to realize how important it was to the economy of England and the North American colonies. It's also an important nickname for my son when he's misbehaving. <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, no, there's this section here, uh, page 112 yeah. of Lawler's book, where he says, quote, at the time of the Roanoke voyages, a pound of sassafras sold for 18 English pounds a ton. A decade later, the same amount was worth more than 300 English pounds or nearly $100,000 in today's currency, end quote. Yeah, it's crazy, but it was so useful in such demand that it was worth the treacherous journey over there to collect it. So Raleigh intended to collect sassafras that would be found a long way south of the lost colony on Croton Island. But once again, bad weather had prevented the expedition from exploring the area around Croton, now Hatteras Island. Or so he said. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, exactly. It's just, if we can go look for these folks somewhere in there where I'm going to make a, a ton of money, that's good too. Well, this speaks to the point you were making just a minute ago. For Raleigh's claim on the Virginia Territory to remain in good standing, the colonists had to remain alive. So he wasn't too interested in finding out if they had perished, even though John White's report was that they had most likely just relocated. And here's an interesting legal aspect of it. A legal petition was put forth by John Dare, the son of John White's son-in-law, Ananias Dare, to declare his father legally dead so that he could inherit his estate. That petition was made in 1594 and granted three years later in 1597. So that gives you a little bit of insight to what the courts may have thought was the real deal going on with John White's colony. Yes. And again, this is a point where Lawler actually pointed out in his book that even though the courts thought that, it didn't matter if the queen didn't. At this point in time, it was the queen's thoughts that mattered. So whether mm -hmm. or not Ananias Dare was dead, it was up to her to really say whether or not the whole entire colony was lost. And in that case, so would Raleigh's charter be. Raleigh lost his charter in 1603 when he was accused of treason against King James I of England in what was called the Main Plot. And King James I rose to power after Elizabeth died and Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded. So he was the guy in charge and he couldn't stand Raleigh. Apparently he thought he was arrogant jerk. So... <laughs> The main plot got its name because it was the main or principal alleged plot that was discovered and sussed out from another lesser alleged plot called the by-plot, B-Y-E, or the secondary minor plot. The supposed plot was that Henry Brooke, Lord Cobham, was negotiating for a huge sum of money to come from the Spanish Empire. He was to travel to Spain to collect the money, then return to England by way of Jersey, where the governor was Sir Walter Raleigh. Cobham and Raleigh were then supposed to choose how best to use the money in dethroning James I and replacing him with his cousin, Lady Arabella Stewart. For their purported involvement, Henry Brooke and Walter Raleigh were imprisoned in the Tower of London for 13 years. Mm. Now enter Bartholomew Gilbert in 1602. He was an English mariner and co-captain on the first known European expedition to Cape Cod in an attempt to establish a colony in New England. Bartholomew Gosnall, this is a different Bart, for which mm. the town of Gosnall, Massachusetts is named, 
near what is now called Cuddyhunk Island, was captain and had previously sailed with Raleigh. But since Bartholomew Gilbert had failed to load enough provisions to stay over the winter, the crew that was going to stay and start a colony decided to return with Gilbert to England. But they made a huge profit on the furs and especially sassafras plants. There you go, sassafras. There goes the sassafras again. This was And the two Barts. Yes, yes, and the two Barts. Then in 1603, Bartholomew Gilbert sailed back to the Virginia Territory in a final expedition to locate the lost Roanoke colony. Their destination was Chesapeake Bay, which is actually where it was originally supposed to be settled in the first place. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys remember from part one. That was when the strange communication happened where they said, no, we're not going to Chesapeake Bay. You're going to stay here on this island. Right. But due to, once again, bad weather, they had to anchor <laughs> weather. somewhere nearby. Gilbert and four other crewmen comprised the landing search party, but for some reason, once ashore, they were killed by a group of Algonquin Native Americans on July 29th. The rest of the crew sailed back to England without searching any further. There you have it. We've got yet another situation. People come over, bad stuff happens, they bug out. Bad weather and hostilities. Yes, and that's a repeating theme with all of these early searches to determine what happened. You can kind of understand that it wasn't so much that people didn't care about these 115 colonists, now made up of men, women, and children. It's that it was so hard to get there. And of course, at the time, it took a long time to get there. And it just didn't facilitate a lot of searching. But now we jump to 1607 with the appearance of another major historical figure for North America and for England as well, and that's John Smith. Because it wasn't until May 4th, 1607, when the first permanent English settlement in the Americas was established with a Jamestown settlement in the colony of Virginia. And these colonists weren't that great at growing crops. So although the Paspahe tribe, who occupied the land located on the northeast bank of the Powhatan River, now the James River, had at first welcomed the settlers and provided them with much-needed supplies and help, and again, perhaps due to over-reliance, the relationship between the colonists and the natives soon deteriorated, and by four years' time, the colonists had wiped out the Paspahe. And then it became the colonists' turn, because between 1609 and 1610, more than 80% of the colonists had died, mostly from disease and starvation. I know we've learned these things as kids in history, but when you become an adult and you see what's going on nowadays, you get that number that makes an impact on your psyche, as it did then too. People weren't less compassionate back then. They were a lot hardier, maybe, and sturdier and used to these kinds of hardships. But of course, they loved each other just as much as we do now. So during this period, quote-unquote, the starving time of the Jamestown settlement in the winter of 1609 to 1610, the approximately 500 colonists there at the start of winter had dwindled down to about 60 by the time spring came. 500 people whittled down to 60, and there is now also forensic evidence that the residents had resorted to cannibalism just to survive. And so maybe like Roanoke, Jamestown was abandoned by the colonists in 1610. However, a resupply mission arrived and they came back, at which time the settlement originally titled as Fort James was now considered the first permanent English settlement. Yeah, they almost missed each other. Those guys had bugged out of Jamestown. They were like, we're done with this. And right at that moment, they're like, wait, we're here. We got some stuff for you. So that was really on the edge. It was that brief moment that changed history. During the skirmishes with the colonists and the native Powhatan tribe, important and influential leader of the Jamestown colony, John Smith, was taken prisoner by the Powhatan chief, 
Wahun Seneca, also known commonly then as Chief Powhatan, and his brother, good luck with this one, Upchenikano. Oh. And by the way, here's a little fun note. John Smith was knighted by the Prince of Transylvania, Sigismund Bathory, for his services. Sigismund being related to Elizabeth Bathory. It's all connected. Once Ooh. again. I didn't even bother to go down the rabbit hole of trying to find out what familial connection he was to Elizabeth, but he is part of the Bathory clan. So there you go. There's a connection to John Smith. Well, these two Powhatan chiefs told Smith about a village known as Okanahonan, where the men, believe it or not, wore European-style clothing and lived in walled housing. Smith was later free to return to Jamestown, where he then got permission from the Paspahe chief, Owinchopunk to explore another village called Panawick, or Panawicki. It's P-A-N-A-W-I-C-K-E. And that village also reportedly had men that dressed in European-style clothing. A rudimentary map was drawn up that had locations for these villages, and also for one called Pakrakanik that included the notation, quote, Here remaineth four men that came from Roanoke to Okanahanan. So that's a curious note on this map here, saying that there are four men, and I'm guessing of European clothing, from Roanoke. In the Pakrakanik, in Lawler's book, it appears as Pakrawik, and he says that's a river area. So uh-huh. I don't know of a river here in North Carolina called that, but I also have been gone for 20 plus years and just got back. You know, <laughs> what's funny, that's true, but like we all have our regional Native American names that we've hung on to. But that one, for me, sounds like New Jersey for some reason. Like a Native American New Jersey territory name. Yeah, it does. You're right. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Rob from Cape Breton Island. Now back to the show. Well, John Smith wrote a letter about his findings that included this map, which were sent back to England in 1608. The original map has been lost, but the Spanish ambassador to England at the time, Pedro de Zuniga, had obtained a copy. This was apparently a masterstroke of espionage at the time, according to Lawler. Uh. So that is now known as the Zuniga map. And he sent a copy of that to King Philip III of Spain. King Philip II was the one that was responsible for St. Augustine and Florida and all that. So this is King Philip III now. Now, John Smith had sent out two search parties to investigate these rumored locations, but nothing was found. An expedition to investigate Pakrakanik, which had the map note about the four men from Roanoke, was halted due to a conflict with the Paspahe. So, uh, and I know I'm not saying their names right, and I'm sure everybody's like, what is happening uh, with all these words? <laughs> Just uh, let it flow over. <laughs> the, the Royal Council for Virginia in England had received a report in May of 1609 that the Roanoke colonists were annihilated by Powhatan chief Wahuna Sanaka. Do you have to put his real name? Can't we just call him Powhatan? You put his real name everywhere in here? Yeah, because that is his real official name. But that's why people said he's just Chief Powhatan. That's easier to say. But like, come on, man, get in the Wahoon Seneca spirit here. Well, the report possibly came from Wahoon Seneca's brother-in-law, Machumps. Yeah. see, Machumps. Yeah, this is one of my favorite Native American names in the story, Machumps, uh, who had traveled to England by that time. However, it's unknown where this information came from as it could have also come from a returning report by John Smith. And there's ongoing theories, according to Lawler, I remember in his books, about Machump's ideas, what he was trying to do, and how he might have been trying to discredit Powhatan by saying, oh, he killed them all. 
And so yeah. that's the thing to remember about this. And that goes back to what I was saying in part one about all these players and these different characters and their backgrounds and their motivations. There's a lot going on here and everybody has an agenda, whether they're the English or the Native American. And obviously the indigenous peoples are in a defensive position. I'm not saying that that's not the case at all here. I'm just saying that everybody is just people. And people in a lot of ways are all the same, no matter what culture they come from. So it's unknown, again, at where that information came from, and it's a little fuzzy. Well, based on that intelligence, though, the council back in England ordered the Jamestown colony to relocate somewhere near the mouth of the Chowan River. And I only bring this up because the Chowan River will play an important part about trying to locate where these lost colonists may have ended up. It just kept coming up, this Chowan River, over and over again. And it features prominently in a lot of the theories of where they may have gone to. Well, the English writer William Strachey arrived in Jamestown in May of 1610, well into the months of the starving time that we mentioned earlier, along with the new acting governor, Thomas Gates and Machumps, Wahunasenica's brother-in-law. Strachey's travelogue, The History of Travail into Virginia, Britannia, written upon his return to England in 1612, became one of the main sources of the beginning history of English colonization of North America. Strachey is also famous for his documentation of their 1609 voyage to the Virginia colony, where their ship, the Sea Venture, was wrecked in a hurricane on the then uninhabited island of Bermuda. I didn't know this. Uh, Bermuda was uninhabited at that time. And the sailors that would uh, stock up there, they would get fresh water and meat and replenish their supplies as best they could, would hear all kinds of weird animal noises overnight. Mm. And the sailors that were there overnight didn't really know what kind of animals they were. They just sounded like a lot of screaming banshees to them. So the nickname for Bermuda was Isle of Devils. Well, the shipwreck survivors built two smaller ships while spending 10 months stranded on Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, anyone, uh, mm -hmm. and eventually were able to reach the Jamestown colony. Now, Strachey's testimony of the shipwreck and his account of the Virginia colony is thought to have been an inspiration, believe it or not, and source for William Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. So that's, uh -huh. that's pretty interesting. It's fascinating, yeah. Strachey's account coincided with the Zuniga map, but he had also provided an additional story about what happened at Roanoke. Strachey's story of the 1587 colony described how they had relocated and lived in peace for 20 years with a tribe that was outside of Powhatan lands. It's not known from Strachey's account where the lost colonists had relocated to or what friendly tribe had taken them in, but there is a description in his history of travail about an attack on the Chesapeake or Chesapeake tribe ordered by Chief Wahoon Seneca of the Powhatan. According to the story, Wahoon Seneca's priests had warned him that his power would be threatened by a nation from the Chesapeake Bay area, and this prompted the preemptive strike just before the Jamestown settlers had arrived. Four Englishmen, one woman, and two boys had escaped an attack on the Roanoke colonists and found protection from another tribe. So this has led some people to hypothesize that the Roanoke colonists had relocated to Chesapeake Bay and were living with the Chesapeans when the Powhatans massacred them all. It was Chesapeake Bay. That was originally where they were supposed to go, but there was that weird conversation where they wound up stuck on Roanoke Island. And part of that story, once again, is that these four Englishmen, one woman and two boys, they survived and fled up the Chowan River, where they later came under protection from another chieftain, Ayanoko. And that's one more spot where Chowan River comes up in this web of hypotheses. Well, now we have the name Samuel Purchase enter the history of contemporary investigations and theories into the disappearance. 
Samuel Purchase was an English cleric who published numerous travelogues for those that had visited foreign countries. And this Samuel Purchase mentioned a confession to the massacre in his 1625 treatise, Virginia's Verger. In it, Purchase cites that regarding John White's 1587 Roanoke colony, quote, Powhatan confessed to Captain Smith that he had been at their slaughter and had divers utensils of theirs to show. So here, Purchase is claiming that Chief Powhatan, whose proper name was Wahoon Seneca, had confessed to John Smith that he was present at the massacre of the Roanoke colonists and had divers, meaning several, they had several of their utensils to show as proof. However, Samuel Purchase was pointedly including that alleged claim of an incident, along with citing the killing of Grenville's 15 soldiers and the Jamestown Massacre of 1622 by the Powhatan in an increasing English mainland attitude of animosity against the native North Americans. This general shift towards an air of contempt came after news of the Jamestown attack, and that propaganda was backed by the Virginia Company of London to help reassure investors that Jamestown would be made safe by it. So don't worry, we're going to wipe them out. And please continue to pour your money into these investments here. Well, Purchase was making the argument that the Native Americans had given up their right to the land because of their violence and that the English now could rightfully claim their New World possessions. So if we take a look at it logically, Samuel Purchase did know John Smith. So it's possible that Smith told Purchase about any confession Wahoon Seneca made. But if it's true, it could have also been just an intimidation tactic by the chief to keep Smith in line. And any European utensils Wahoon Seneca had to show could have come from another source, like the Spanish at Ahakan Mission in the Virginia Peninsula. But this is another note to keep in mind for later is that these utensils, I do wonder if they showed up in later archaeological digs. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to consider. And the other thing to consider that's so important in this story with all these people in it, so many people coming and going, there's so much political drive to get certain things done. This is a power struggle here. It's a juggernaut that's taking over the new world. And I remember when I took mass comm theory, and one of the things that one of my professors talked to me about is like, you know, you always have to remember the filter of the time and the place that the message is coming from, and also the medium is the message. So you get into this case where what we can say and what you're not saying about purchase, but what we've read is that he was a quote-unquote Indian hater. So his whole agenda is rooted in that sort of almost that manifest destiny kind of vibe. And that's something to understand about anything that he's telling anybody in this position. Well, yes, obviously Samuel Purchase had a point of view he wanted to make, and that reflected the feeling of the time back in England of like, wait, what's going on over there? Are all our colonists getting massacred? And we can't be at fault. So you have to weigh that against his declaration that Powhatan confessed to John Smith. That confession, he may have heard that actually from John Smith, or it came through another report that ended up being heard and repeated by Samuel Purchase. So we don't know, but obviously you have to weigh all these factors about, well, where would that statement come from? But from a detective standpoint here, if you look at it as, well, that confession really did happen, that may explain it. Or Powhatan may have confessed that, but he was making that up for the reasons just stated. So that confession could be a key clue in this mystery. And another thing I thought was fascinating here, and there's some parallels, I think, although I'm not fully versed in it, is comparisons between these priests that are 
bending uh, Powhatan's ear and Rasputin, for example, or other examples of people like that who are seem to be pulling the strings in a nefarious way from behind the scenes. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about these parallels in different cultures, different times, different worlds. But it's all the same kind of stuff in terms of hierarchy and Machiavellian goals, which is really fascinating right. to me, sociologically. Now, I don't know if you really came across this, but it sounded like what the priests had said to Wahoon Seneca was a bit of a prophecy, like, you better act on this, or we predict that you will be quashed by this rising power in the Chesapeake, and that's why he acted, or they were just thinking tactically. Yeah. But it was people like William Strachey, now he was actually there, and he believed that these priests were dabbling in Satanism, as, yes, a lot of folks back then did and, and do now. But he wasn't against the people, the Native American Powhatan peoples. He wanted to petition to convert them to Christianity. He was really against the priests that gave Wahun Seneca the idea to wipe these people out. So it's a lot of ancient history about who's telling the truth, and if it is true, why are they saying that? Are they being accurate, or do they have some political motive? Well, English writer and naturalist John Lawson explored the then province of Carolina in his expedition of 1701 to 1709, and he was the first to examine the Croton area since 1590 when John White returned to England. Hatteras Island was formed when the waterway between the Croton and Hatterask, that's a spelled completely different, H-A-T-O-R-A-S-K, <laughs> islands yeah. closed up in 1672. Yeah, that goes back to what you were saying about suddenly, within a year, these two chunks of uh, spits, I guess, closed up the inlet. Yeah. And now you have this big chunk of land, and that's now referred to as Hatteras Island. Right. That could just happen with tide, current, storms, anything can make things change. So when Lawson met with the native Hatteras people, it was apparent to him that they had been affected by the English presence for the last hundred years. Some of the Hatteras tribal members had gray eyes and claimed that some of their ancestors were white. And when Lawson explored Roanoke Island, he found the ruins of a fort, English firearms, a powder horn, and coins. It was Lawson's hypothesis that after the Roanoke settlers felt that no help from England was ever coming, they assimilated into the Hatteras tribe. After Lawson's exploration of the sites, investigation into the fate of the lost colony faded. Interest sparked again, though, in 1834 with the publication of American historian and statesman George Bancroft's book series, History of the United States from the Discovery of the American Continent. Now, when Bancroft was Secretary of the Navy in 1845, he established the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Yeah. But Bancroft's book had renewed public curiosity in the lost colony and generated scholarly examination and especially people's imaginations about the fate of Virginia Dare, the little baby, that all we well, know he, about her was uh, that she was born. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, as we said at the end of part one, it was really fascinating in that here is a name, and, and where Bancroft deserves mention, not only for starting the U.S. Naval Academy, but here Bancroft had illustrated these historical figures and really given life to them, in a pinnacle historical book here, in that he did it so well, so comprehensively, I believe that, as it was said, these characters really captured people's imagination. Like, it brought the story, their plight, back to life, and, as we said, to a baby who has no history other than she's a name. But really, Virginia Dare is an idea. Well, it's generally known that the mystery has generated a lot of speculation since it's 
happening in 1590, that since 1590, people then had ideas and theories and, and hypotheses about what happened. But from that time until now, none of it really has had much academic or scientific benefit. It's just conjecture about the colony's fate. But keeping that in mind, there have been some archaeological discoveries which may link to the Roanoke colonists. But how much of that can really solidly connect them to it? So to back up, and as with any mystery and detective story, what you got to start with is what is known. And when John White returned in 1590, he did find a few clues. So taking these few mysterious clues into consideration, let's get the 10,000-foot overview picture, as we like to call it. And Scott, you're going to have some ideas on this. I've got to go ahead and say cursory research and all that. We are only just coming into this, and we say this in all our episodes. There's people that have been at this stuff for decades, and in some cases, hundreds of years. Well, the 1590s. <laughs> yeah, the 1590s in terms of the research. And this story, honestly, it has a ton of parallels to Oak Island. I really saw them coming up over and over again. And I don't mean that in terms of the nature of the mystery itself. I mean it more in terms of the humanity and how the different players come and go. And also, I'm pretty sure that Oak Island was the first time we talked about confirmation bias, wasn't it? That was when I remember learning oh. about it. Well, we were certainly practicing it before we talked about it. <laughs> well, we were. Well, that's a good question. I don't know if that was the very first time. It's one of our early archaeological-themed topics that we what we chose to do. And that's where we really dove into these theories, especially ones that are current now and just how everyone's got an idea and some of the ideas that have come up about Oak Island by archaeologists and people who are a lot of amateurs, actually. And all these camps have opposing views of each other's theory. Some of them blend together. Some of them work well together. Others are completely at odds with each other. But what we found is that it doesn't matter if you're an amateur archaeologist or somebody who is a serious hobbyist who's, who's studied this for 20 years, whatever your, your subject is, there seem to be a lot of parallels with accredited and academic teams that are doing archaeological digs, because at the bottom of it, we're still all just people. And so we have our prejudices and just social human interactions with each other in that we think that our idea is the best one. It's going to fit. And no matter how much we have to pound that square post into the round hole to make it fit. So that's what we noticed with Oak Island is that it depends on what team you're on and they all have differing views, but you have to choose sides, especially in the academic realm. And that's one thing that I keep bringing up that I learned from a grad student in archaeology. When you do your thesis, you have to pick what camp of thought you're in. Yes. And, and now that I look back on it, it might have been Amelia Earhart where we talked about confirmation bias first. But either way, those, those, shows, right. were, yeah. those shows were very close together. But the point was that there could be, to your point, a fair amount of animosity or disdain for these differing schools of thought. And in some cases, it's more pronounced than others. Because the one thing I will say, at least from Lawler's perspective, having read his book, which, and again, this comes back to the cursory research point of this, that's my full perspective on the Lost Colony. Whatever I grew up with and heard in school and learned when I was a kid, which was a long time ago for me, then that plus Lawler's book, that's my whole experience. Now, I think Lawler's book is excellent. By the way, I found a website for him today. If you want to go and check it out, it's andrewlawler.com, L-A-W. L-E-R.com. So the idea that I got from him 
is that with these researchers and these archaeologists that have looked into the lost colony over the years, they do disagree, but they're pretty civil about it. And he's done some very interesting stuff where he got some of the old guard together and the new guard, and he had them talk to each other. It was a really interesting thing that he did because one of the older archaeologists, his name was Hume, is in his 90s. He just passed away, I think, in 2017. But before he passed away, Lawler arranged for him to meet a couple of the guys who are working now. And they all sat around and exchanged theories. And Lawler said he could sense a little bit of, not animosity, but just like, well, I don't, here's my theory and your theory. Okay, that's what, and then when they got done, what Hume said to them was, you guys both have a lot of work to do. So you've got that whole changing (laughs) of the guard thing. Yeah. Yeah, generations of information coming in. But the big picture is, there's not a lot going on here that's conclusive. There's a lot of stuff that people want to be conclusive. And the problem is that the evidence, well, you can say that it came from a certain place and a certain time. You can definitely do that. But what you can't say is when did it arrive and how did it get to where it is now? And this particular mystery, the places that people are looking, primarily Roanoke Island and some other ones that we're going to talk about here in a minute, they are what I believe one archaeologist called remarkably sterile. Very little is coming up. And they say that if you go to Jamestown and you do a dig, you get 10,000 artifacts. You go to Roanoke and you do a dig and you get three. Yeah, that, if any, and none of them are a direct connection to the lost colony. Right. What will happen is you'll get Native American stuff that relates to the local Native American tribes, the Croatone, or all the various tribes that we've talked about who were all part of the Iroquois nation. I guess I'm not sure that's the right word for that, but the collection of various tribes that made up the Iroquois. So if you've got pottery that relates to them, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the lost colony. But then if you find something that I, you know, I might call a trinket, some other item that clearly came from England, all right? So it came from England. Is it Elizabethan, pointing to the era in which the lost colony was established? Or did it come later? Could it have come later and been left there? Or could it have come with the lost colony and then been given to a local... Native American, who then kept it for several years and then moved it to another location. And then if he drops it in his trash pit, does that mean that the lost colony moved there? It doesn't. It gets so complicated. And one of the things that comes up is the trash pits. You can't find trash. You should be able to find trash pits that have all kinds of things in them. And they have found some, but there's not been a mother load. And that's something we need to consider as we start going down the road into the various theories that are out there right now. So based on what you said, there is an interesting thought about the trash pits that were found on Croatoan or Croatoan Island, in that there's a distinct change between oysters and turtles and fish that were a good spot to be caught there at that inlet. And then there's a discernible change to foods like deer and birds. And that would suggest that Are the Native Americans there on the island now using English firearms? Right. Is there a cultural exchange happening where now, instead of the Native Americans teaching the colonists how to fish and live off the ocean, they in turn are coming back and saying, hey, look, we have these weapons and now we can, it's easier for us to shoot these land-based mammals that you can get way more meat off of. And so that's a question. Is it from the previous expedition that was all male or is it the 1587 colonists that disappeared? So you're, you really have to nail it down to what group, because we know that the earlier expedition, well, it failed. They shot the leader. They had to all go back with Francis Drake. So if you find some artifacts like 
you know, that are of that period, maybe it belonged to them and not the colonists. So it gets very murky very quickly, but let's back up to what we do know that John White found upon his return in 1590, that one, there was no sign of a struggle that he could see, no signs of a hasty retreat. However, the settlement did build up defensive fortifications. So it was obvious that they possibly could have expected an attack and were preparing for that. But we don't know if that happened. And in light of an attack, there were no bones, no human remains, graves. So it seems they left while they were alive. At least to this point, nothing has been found on the island that would suggest any kind of human remains. One other point about a big clue, probably the biggest clue, is the message, the word, Croatoan, carved into the palisade of the fortification. It is consistent with John White's instruction to the colonists for a secret token to be left by them of their condition. When he sees it, he's like, well, there you go. I told them to leave a message if they're going to leave for whoever might show up. It might be him. It might be some other Englishmen who show up to check on their condition. But that was the agreement, the secret token that they were supposed to tell them where to find them. So in John White's mind, they had simply relocated. And here's the name of the place where they went. Right. So that in itself gets a little more complicated. And it does for me, too. And I felt like, why would you carve a word on a tree, especially if you were moving, that said exactly where you were? I mean, I get it that you would do it. Supposedly, they were supposed to put a cross over it if they were in trouble and there was no cross. But what if you ran out of time? You didn't have time to put the cross (laughs) up there. You know, and again, I I already made jokes in part one about, wait, just one second, I got to carve this word in the tree, which probably takes a few minutes. But still... There's a lot of possibilities with the word Croatone, too, or Croatoan, because Mm -hmm. that is a location, but at this time, geography and locations were very loose, and they were ascribed to the local indigenous people, and Lawler himself talks about how it moves around. It wasn't necessarily that island. At one point, it was all the way across the Pamlico Sound. At another point, it was at another location. So is it really this pinpoint location? Hard to say. Does it also mean a location versus the tribe because there was the Croatoan tribe? So are you saying this is the place we went or we're with these folks? So there's a lot of debate about what exactly it meant. And then we come back around to, and we've already mentioned this, how when he comes back, he doesn't even get there to look to the island that's named Croatoan at the time. So there's a lot going on with regard to the interpretation of that. I myself also had the question, which Lawler's book doesn't really answer. I mean, he mentions it a little bit, but if the Spanish were coming, they had to worry about King Philip coming and wiping out the colony in an effort to prevent the English from getting a foothold in North America and, you know, popping up from St. Augustine. Plus, he was also worried that it would be a base for piracy against his ships that were running all the gold out of South America. So then here's the question. Why would you put a word on a tree that says where we went if you have to be worried about someone coming to kill you? Well, that is one of the hypotheses that they were attacked by the Spanish because Spanish forces, they knew of English plans to have some kind of base for privateering, a piracy base in this new Virginia territory as early as 1587. And they were looking for it even before John White had shown up with his colonists. And you have to keep in mind that the Spanish Empire already had a lot of the North American eastern coast with Florida as their main claim, and they'd already been exploring all up and down the coast. 
and they didn't recognize England's right to colonize any of it, and that included Roanoke or Chesapeake Bay. And then you have to figure that the colonists probably knew about the Spanish attack on Fort Caroline in 1565, much earlier, so they were aware that there was a danger. However, you now have to consider the fact that also the Spanish never found it. They never found the secret English base and were probably looking for it in the Chesapeake Bay area all the way up until 1600 and probably a little bit after that. So it doesn't seem like they were aware of Roanoke. Now, a lot of this Spanish attack hypothesis actually comes from a playwright, Paul Green, who is going to write a drama about the Lost Colony, and he just noticed in his research that there were a lot of Spanish records that made references to Sir Walter Raleigh and the settlements of the English, and that led to an idea that maybe the Spanish really did find where they were and wiped them all out and got rid of the evidence somehow, or the evidence was just lost over those years after the attack. Yeah, and just quickly, Fort Caroline was actually a French colonial settlement that was up in the northern eastern side of Florida. So it was fairly close to King Philip's domain with St. Augustine and all that. In fact, they're not sure exactly where it was, but guess where it was real close to? Jacksonville. And it, yeah. so they don't know they don't know the perfect location, but what this ties back to in an everything is connected kind of way is that it's possible that the bet sphere came from Fort Caroline. <laughs> no, wait, I'm making hey, a stretch there. Wait, oh, I, <laughs> hey, it's all stretchy. Who knows? The, the reality is the French were there and the Spanish came and sacked it in 1565, which was just a few years earlier than our story has taken place here. So word was out. And here's something to add to all this. This place, the New World, has a reputation. And it has a reputation for the Spanish who are, you know what, doing pretty good here. And then everybody else who's not doing so great, especially people that are going up to Virginia in air quotes, which is the Outer Banks, which is this notoriously dangerous area for ocean going vessels, as well as indigenous tribes. If you don't hit it off with them, you're going to be in trouble. So there's all kinds of things happening there that make it a very risky venture when you get there. You, you have to fear the other powers from back home that are competing with your own country, as well as the people that are already established there. Well, in reference to your point here about the New World and the Virginia Territory being a risky and dangerous place, here's a very obvious hypothesis, and in a lot of respects, a pretty logical one, in that the colonists there, look, after who knows, a year, they were like, hey, you know what, no one's coming to get us, and if we keep waiting for them, we're just going to run out of supplies and maybe risk an attack by the locals. And we're not really sure what they're going to do. So we built a fortification just to keep us safe, but we're very wary of being attacked. So maybe the best thing is that we all just put our efforts together and get this boat going, the pinnace, and sail it back to England. Maybe that's the best thing. Let's get the heck out of here. So in reference to that theory, the return to England, the colonists had a pinnace that remained from that 1587 expedition. They could have tried to use it to sail back to England and just got lost at sea, therefore removing any trace of them. They have one. Uh, they have a reproduction of one, I guess, at Roanoke Island that you can see when you go there. It's unfortunately closed due to the coronavirus at the moment, which I found oh. out the hard way. But yeah, you can go. I wanted to go check that out, but it's docked there. A replica of a pinnace is there. So that would be really cool to see. But Well, the definition of pinnace encompasses a lot of variations of a smaller boat. Look, when you see in the movies and the large pirate ship or whatever, the galleon anchors off the coast a ways, and then you can't just sail that thing right up to the beach. You're going to ground it. 
Right. You'll be stuck there. Uh, sometimes that, of course, happens in a shipwreck, and then you have to figure something else out. But the larger ship is anchored, and then you'll see guys rowing ashore in a landing party, right? So the pinnace could be just a boat with oars and uh, gunnels, and, and uh, you have crewmen rowing ashore, or they could be rigged. As we saw in part one, there were fully rigged pinnaces that you could sail. It just depends right. on the, on the, and sometimes they were outfitted depending on what your mission was at the time, but usually it's a smaller ship. And if you're looking for evidence of that being possible, well, the French colonists at Charles Fort were able to construct a crude boat after their colony failed, and they were able to sail back to Europe in 1563, but that was uh, not a great trip, I'm sure. That was all cobbled together and uh, they're extremely desperate. Well, unfortunately, there are a few known details about the pinnace the Roanoke colonists had, although pinnaces usually sailed with larger ships, as we're saying here. Uh, sometimes they were part of a fleet, so they could sail under their own power. But on the other hand, it would have been capable of making that voyage. There's a problem with this hypothesis, though. The pinnace wouldn't have been large enough to carry all of the colonists, and the amount of provisions needed for a sea voyage across the Atlantic would have limited the number of passengers they could take. The Roanoke colonists could have built a second ship using local lumber and parts borrowed from the pinnace that they did have. As the survivors of the shipwreck, if you remember, the Sea Venture had built themselves a ship from the remaining wreckage. But it's likely that even with two small ships, some of the colonists would have had to remain behind. And then the mystery of what happened to them <laughs> continues. I love to just sit here on the microphone as a podcaster and say, wow, this is really neat. And it's stuff that people who've studied history, they all encountered these feelings and observations way back before I'm doing it here, uh, very closely past the half century mark in my life. It's so amazing to think about how nowadays, generally, when I think back to all of these various journeys that people were taking out to the new world and encountering new cultures and having no idea what they were doing, there's people that have definitely gone on trips who went missing that there's probably no record they ever even left. And we don't know what happened to them, and they are truly gone forever. And it's really fascinating when you look back at how the world was back then, the Lost Colony. That's just a handful of people that vanished in all kinds of scenarios like this, but it's one that's caught the world's imagination, especially America, and obviously especially the East Coast where America started. Hi, I'm Layton, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, this next hypothesis largely comes from Irish historian David Beers Quinn, whose specialty of focus was on the voyages to discover America and the colonization thereof, North America. And his idea was that there was possibly a Powhatan attack at Chesapeake Bay, which would have been the original intended destination for the colonists before they were so rudely dumped onto Roanoke Island. And Quinn's theory is closely connected to William Strachey's account that accused Wahoon Seneca in his statements that he did indeed slaughter the colonists and the Chesapeans, although that appeared as two separate accounts. Quinn is making the assumption that these events happened at the same time, that they were both wiped out because they had become a combined community sometime around 1607. And his idea goes on to theorize that the Roanoke colony used their pinnace and some other small boats, and they transported themselves to the Chesapeake Bay area, 
while at the same time leaving behind a small group to meet with John White should he show up. But what happened, of course, is over time, the main group that went to Chesapeake Bay assimilated into the tribes there, as well as the small group that stayed behind to tell John White where the others had went, they got assimilated into the Croatoan tribes. When you're in a lifeboat, which is essentially what this is, when you look at the psychology of the breakdown of what's happening, when they're waiting for this resupply and years are going by and nobody's coming back, right? So you're now, you're, right. it's a year or two, people are going to start arguing about who's in charge, what's the best course of action. And then if you add into that, well, I'm sick of eating oysters, the food here is no good, we have to keep borrowing food and we're making people mad and we're starving. Also, there was a drought at the time period, supposedly a two-year drought at least. So there's a lot going on that might have made life on Roanoke too hard. So then they say, hey, look, we know what, we've got to split up. But maybe someone's saying, nobody's going to come back, we're going to get a resupply, there's no way they're going to leave this colony to just rot, it's a very important venture. And they say, okay, fine, here's what's going to happen. We need to go up to Chesapeake where we were supposed to go in the first place. You guys go down to Croatone where our friends are because they were already friendly. Hang out with them and then if White shows up, we'll carve Croatone in the tree. If White shows up, he'll find you, we'll get the resupply and you guys can come find us in the Chesapeake area. And the other folks go up. Then what happens is even more time goes by because they, maybe they do this pretty much right after White leaves because they're having problems feeding themselves or they're deciding that the island is uninhabitable for the long run. So then all that time they're spending with these two separate tribes, they start assimilating with the tribes and they start folding into the tribes. And then at that point, Powhatan or Wahoon Seneca comes along and massacres everybody who's in the Chesapeake group that's folded in with the colonists, right? And am I getting that right for us? That's the big idea here. Yeah, you're in the ballpark, I think. I think none of okay. us uh, know what the heck we're talking about, us two. We really don't. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's the, that's the <laughs> impression that I get. what I've learned in the past two weeks, yeah. <laughs> Look, we're 10,000 foot. I, I'm going to say 30,000 foot now. It just uh, distances me from actual facts that I should know. I think the problem with Quinn's hypothesis, and I think some of his peers feel this way at the time, a lot of it depends on what William Strachey and Samuel Purchase had to say about it. So it's a little, you're taking the, into account of a writer. Character's uh, a little and dubious. A, yeah, and then the guy that uh, may have had uh, a negative opinion about the Native Americans while back as a cleric in England. So you have to rely on those and make some assumptions. And that's where I think people have a little problem with that. Quinn was suggesting that Samuel Mace's 1602 voyage went to Chesapeake and maybe kidnapped Powhatans to bring them back to England. And these kidnapped Powhatans were able to eventually relate a story that made its way to John Smith, but he didn't publish any of these because he kept it quiet and reported it directly to King James because of political considerations. Yeah, and think about how often that probably happened too. This is definitely, we should keep this one quiet. This thing that happened, we shouldn't talk about this because that's <laughs> well, going to irritate that guy and this guy, and then next thing you know, we're assassinated. But think about it, Scott. This is not just uh, let's go make friendly relations with a, a new world. This is a business venture. Exactly. Follow the money. It's kind of like the SpaceX rocket. Like, hey, you want to take a ride? I mean, the first three blew up. But this is probably safe one here, so go ahead and invest. That's why we said earlier Raleigh had didn't have an interest in uh, really proving that his colonists were alive or dead either way. They had to remain alive for his claim to be viable, but 
again, he was trying to get investment in this. It's like, well, every every batch we send over, they all get massacred. So you don't want to put your money into that. Yeah, and I'd actually like to read this little excerpt from Lawler's book about that. This is on page 132, referring to Quinn. The more I examined Quinn's reasoning, the more I realized that he had failed to point out the limitations, ambiguities, and omissions of his sources. The historian relied heavily on the words of Strachey, a man who spent barely a year in Virginia, and purchased a vitriolic Indian hater who, by his own account, never traveled more than 200 miles from his village in Essex. They, in turn, got their information from Machumps, a man with a motive to misinform the English in order to accrue power. I'll just jump in here. The implication there was that Machumps wanted to unseat Powhatan or Wahoon Seneca, if I'm saying that his yeah. name right there. The London Company also had reason to insist the colonists were still alive to reassure nervous investors and prevent financial collapse. Quinn ignored Smith's accounts and rejected White's conclusion that the settlers moved to Croatoan or possibly 50 miles inland. Nor was there archaeological evidence to back up his notion of a city of Raleigh near Norfolk. He goes on to mention that even Quinn's closest acolytes, I learned, were skeptical of his conclusion, which failed to win acceptance among other scholars. So that gives you the overview there, but it's still, it's, there's a lot about it that's compelling and makes sense psychologically, but then we come back around to this thing that we've encountered 170 times before on Astonishing Legends, or, well, not that many, that's every episode, <laughs> but I don't know how many topics we've done. I've never added that up. But it's that uh. thing where you do all this drilling down and looking at all of these ideas and then you pull back and you have to say, this is 90% speculation. It may be yeah. super well-educated speculation, yes, but yes. it's speculation with very little to go on other than comparing it to other known events. So Lee Miller's hypothesis has religious and political elements to it and it's beginning here in that Raleigh was sympathetic to the colonists because some of them may have been separatists seeking refuge from persecution in England, and Walsingham considered that to be a threat. So he wanted to get rid of them and basically strand them, at which point Raleigh would be unable to mount a relief mission until Walsingham died in 1590. Walsingham gave a lot of money in support of Raleigh's expeditions, and also Simon Fernandez was willing to bring back John White instead of stranding him along with the colonists. So you're bringing back somebody who would be part of this conspiracy, and that part doesn't make sense. And so the rest of Miller's hypothesis goes along with the colonists being split up to different groups and being assimilated, uh, some of them wiping out some of their hosts with their diseases, and some of them being attacked. And it's a little complicated. So again, a lot of this information can be found in the really good Wikipedia entry for this topic. So we suggest taking that out. And we've, we've kind of mapped and hugged the curves, as I say. So I suggest going to the Wikipedia entry if you really want to know the details about some of these hypotheses, because they get a little complicated in that to flesh out your hypothesis, you have to place the colonists going with different tribes, and it's just more names that we're going to mispronounce. Uh, I think Shoanoke, though, I think that's the uh, one tribe that some of the group that had relocated to Croatone Island had sought shelter with. You know, again, it's a lot of supposition. How is Choanoke spelled in your notes there? C-H-O-W-A-N-O-K-E. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I think it's going to be Choanoke. I've got a local consulting me. Thank you, Tommy Beaver. Oh, good. Uh, and he said, <laughs> yeah. he was the one that said no, because I was like, I know that C-H-O-W-A-N is, because there's a county and a river and all that. Yeah. I know it's not Chowan. 
and I know it's not right. Chowan, and he's like, no, it's Chowan. So okay, it must yes. be Chowan Oak, the Chowan Oak Indians. I'm going to buy that hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, you're not supposed to say uh, Indian anymore, I think. But some tribes are still okay with it, but others aren't. So that's why we use Native American most of the time. We mean no disrespect. Yes, you're right. We do, but a lot of scholars still use that term in an academic sense. Yeah, Lawler uses it in his book. Exactly. So just depends. Well, I wanted to talk just briefly before we move off of this about Simon Fernandez. And this is something that Lawler talked about that I thought was really fascinating. He was the Portuguese pilot who took the lost colony to install them in their location before they became lost. Very interesting guy, probably multilingual and very well-versed in piloting. And Lawler puts forth these observations about Fernandez that suggest that he may have been the cagey one here in this whole entire exercise. And I thought this was fascinating. I love this kind of story where there might be somebody who was pulling the strings a little bit from behind the scenes, possibly. And again, everything you look at is speculation here. But there was this interesting thing that happened during the course of the investigation into all this that actually has parallels to Hellier. And I know this is a strange what? thing. Yeah, this yeah. is a strange... I love surprising you with something. What <laughs> happened was somebody actually wrote in and said they had found a bunch of documents that Fernandez had left behind. Mm -hmm. And this was something people really wanted to get their hands on because there's not a whole lot of supporting written work that tells you what happened with this particular colony. So the idea that Fernandez had left some stuff behind that you could then use to inform the real story of what happened became very exciting, and Lawler pursued that. But the problem is the woman who supposedly had sent the information and said that she had it vanished and just stopped writing. And so then if it was a fraud, why would she go away? Why would she bail on this? But she had said that she had found all of these papers that described what happened in the establishment of the colony. So she disappeared. But then he started looking into Fernandez more and it turned out that Fernandez would have been somebody who might have had a lot to gain by not only this mission succeeding, but by maybe being the guy who's sort of pushing all of these other folks into doing it, whether it's Raleigh or White or whoever, kind of the guy behind the scenes who's standing there. And I love this. You know, I always love this character in a movie who knows if it's real, who's just like... The dude who gets all the credit is standing right here. And he's like, we should go over there. And then this guy goes, no, I think we should go this way. And then, <laughs> and then he goes, yeah. we should go that way. And then he's like, <laughs> right. okay. And then he doesn't really say anything. There's an implication that that's a possibility for Fernandez. And Lawler yeah. actually spoke to a guy who is on the Elizabeth II, which is the pinnace I was talking about that's at Roanoke Island. It's a replica. And yeah. uh, that gentleman is a sailor who works on that boat. His name's Warren McMaster. And this is talked about on page 222 of Lawler's book. Fernandez wanted the two pregnant women off his ship before they gave birth, he told me over beers one night at a local bar. Mariners, he explained, feared such a disruptive event. It's also possible the two women, including White's daughter, Eleanor, demanded to go ashore after their horrendous journey, and the governor chose to credit Fernandez and the obscure gentleman with the decision to cover up that embarrassing detail. I thought this was really fascinating speculation. So what you've got here is that McMaster's saying, let's think about this. They've come across, they've made this horrible trip, and Eleanor Dare is about to give birth. The trip has been ungodly, and it's like, nope, we're not going to stop here. We're going to go up to Chesapeake. And these ladies are like, no, I'm not going. I want off this boat now. And mm -hmm. then he doesn't want to say, oh, no offense to ladies these days. I'm very much a <laughs> <Dear. laughs> open-minded guy. Dear, treading on dangerous yes, outer I know, but, waters no, here. but I'm just saying that 
he might have said, oh, I don't want to report back that the ladies aboard decided that this was where we're stopping. So then he says a mysterious order came down and we had to stay. And I was like, wow, that's detective work right there. Again, yeah. though, it's conjecture. We have no way of knowing that. Lawler goes on to say, whatever his reasoning, Fernandez had no obvious motive to sabotage the colony, given that he was an assistant in the city of Raleigh Corporation and therefore almost certainly an investor. This status gave him his own coat of arms, a major milestone for any social climber in Elizabethan England. He had, and this is a quote, I believe, from uh, Mr. McMaster's, he had as much, if not more, to lose than anyone if the colony failed, end quote. So I thought Mm. that was interesting. It's another perspective on yet another one of the players in this story. Well, to make sure we're covering all the hypotheses listed on the wiki page, again, it's a really well done, very comprehensive and thorough account of everything that we know about the Roanoke Colony. But this next one is about local legends in Dare County and some of the oral traditions that have been passed around over the years. And this one refers to a secret operation at an abandoned settlement called Beachland. And this actually has to do with a secret operation supposedly put forth by Walter Raleigh to harvest what? Sassafras. Sassafras. And then he, he, uh, he actually wanted the colonists to harvest it for him, and he kept it secret. And just quickly, sassafras had medicinal qualities and became very popular very fast, although today it is known as a carcinogen. And so it's not That's used right. that way anymore. But back then, when you found something like that that made you feel good and you found it in a new land and nobody could get it back home, you knew you were going to be rich if you could just get it back home and set up a channel. I think it used to be involved and gave a distinctive flavor to gumbo filet, but I believe that's probably stopped at that point. Yes, and they used it to thicken it, I think, I read. Yeah, it's a thickening agent, and all uh, the modern big brand root beers do not have sassafras in them anymore, but they used to make it with that. And if you've ever smelt the wood or the root, it's very aromatic. It's very pleasing. It's got some aromatherapy qualities to it. Well, that's the crux of the secret operation hypothesis. This was put forward by amateur archaeologist Fred Willard, not the comedian, I I believe, and engineer Philip McMullen, who they based that idea off of these local legends from Dare County, North Carolina. According to the lore, the area there had small coffins, some of them with Christian markings, And people connected that to the lost colony of Roanoke, that somehow these were not actually Native American, but European in origin. And this settlement is somewhere near the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge nowadays. So all of the reports that indicated that the original destination for the colony was Chesapeake Bay and that England had really lost contact with them was part of this misinformation operation here to conceal the goings-on in the New World and Sassafras. However, the colony was never really abandoned, and that secret, though, died with Walter Raleigh in 1618. Now, that is part of the hypothesis put forward by McMullen and Willard. And there's one more item that's pointed to as a solidifying agent, a thickening agent to this hypothesis, and that a 1651 map shows a sassafras tree near the Alligator River. So they use that. However, the rest of it really depends on a lot of oral tradition, history, and legend. But, however, there is another problem with this hypothesis in that Raleigh was going to start a sassafras plantation partly because of the failure of the 1585 colony. Well, 
Richard Granville was privateering so well that he recouped the cost of that 1585 expedition. And the other problem was that sassafras prices didn't really go up in value until well after 1590. So that would be way after the 1587 colony. So you have to consider those things. And also, again, you're basing this a lot on local legend, which we like to hear about, but not a lot of solid support for this hypothesis. Yeah. And I should have pointed this out earlier when I was talking about the prices on the sassafras. It doesn't quite line up from a time standpoint in terms of overlap. And that's what happens when you start peeling back the layers on these different hypotheses And to your point, Forrest, yes, oral tradition is very important. It's something that is at the root of a lot of the things that we talk about. I think of um, the Jersey Devil and that sort of thing. And that's really important because, as we always say, generally at the seed of it, there's some truth there down in the root of it. And and you have to find out whether that truth has, in our case, we always look for a paranormal explanation, but we also look for the mundane ones. But the trade-off is that oral tradition gets built upon each time the story is told. And that's part of what it is and part of what makes it so wonderful. But it can also obfuscate the origins of the story and the actual factual details. And when that gets into play, like in this case, this is a historical legend. It's not just a legend, it's a historical one. So when you start playing with the details, you start veering away from what actually happened. And that's part of what makes it so hard to determine what actually happened. Absolutely. And this next one we're going to talk about is about a tree that has a curious inscription on it, very faintly. But the inscription is Korah, and this one has ties to a local legend about a witch named Korah. Apparently, there's a book by Charles H. Wedby that came out in 1989, which deals with the Korah the Witch story. But in this case, this inscription is on a southern live oak tree that's on Hatteras Island. And of course, any old inscription on a tree is going to be looked at closely in this region here. So the idea is that it's similar to leaving the letter CRO on a tree or Croatoan, as John Smith said, graven on the post there at the fort. Graven. graven. Yes, old English <laughs> word old English word for engraved. Right? I would graven. guess so, yeah. Somebody carved it uh, right. and took uh, at least a good time to make it legible, so it's pretty clear. And then, of course, the letters CRO were in the bark of a tree, carved into the bark of a tree nearby that was, I believe, up a little bit of an embankment, but meant to be found. The carving on this southern live oak has people wondering, does that mean it's another indication that the lost colonists had some contact with the Kore tribe, that's C-O-R-E-E, also known as the Koranine. The connection has been made that they left a message that, well, some of us, maybe, or maybe all of us are now with this other tribe, go find us there. There is also another problem with this hypothesis in that the tree itself has been damaged by lightning and decay, and it's impossible now to get a core sample to do tree ring dating on it. But even if you could, you have to then date how old the inscription is, the carving on the tree, and that's nearly impossible. So it doesn't really go anywhere. So to be clear, we can't get a core sample on the Cora tree and or the Cora tree carving. Very good. Yeah, you're you're in Neil Gaiman territory now, Coraline. Yeah. I'm just trying to keep up. Just trying to keep up. So before we get to the possibly the most likely scenario of the mystery of the lost colony, let's take a look at one of the more fringy ones, and that would be the Dare Stones. 
Yeah, boy, this is really quite a story, and it's come and gone, and in terms of its position in the zeitgeist, it has gone from vaunted to completely disdained, which may have not been the right destination for it in hindsight, but it's been a fascinating journey, and for those of you listeners that have been with us since the beginning, you must have made these observations too. There are patterns that emerge when you're looking at these kinds of mysteries all the time, and you look at a bunch of them. Uh, So I guess what I'm saying is there's an upside to us knowing very little about each one, (laughs) but to knowing about all of them something. Jack of all trades, master of none, I guess. So in setting up the story of the Dare Stones, Lawler mentions actually when this story first unfolded, and that was on November 8th, 1937, when a gentleman named Lewis Hammond brought this stone in to Emory University geologist. And the stone he said he had found in the Chowan River, and it had some faint carvings on it, and he thought that they should take a look at it. This story, as we said in the cold open, could easily be two full episodes of Ah. Astonishing Legends. So in an effort not to go there right now, (laughs) I'm going to keep this pretty brief. I'm just going to give you guys an overview of it because it is so fascinating. And he pulled over and with his wife and they were looking around and they found this stone and he brought it in to get it analyzed. The stone had an inscription on it And it was written in, if you believe that it's real, if you believe any of this at all, it was written in Old English, and there's a translation of it on the Wikipedia page for it, which is one of the easiest places to read it. So I'm just going to read it here. This is uh, wikipedia.org slash wiki slash dare underscore stones. This, by the way, is written from the perspective of Eleanor Dare, John White's daughter and the mother of Virginia Dare. Father, soon after you go for England... We came here, only misery and war for two years. Above half dead these two years, more from sickness being twenty-four. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they became frightened of revenge and ran all away. We believe it was not you. Soon after, the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly, they murdered all save seven. My child and Ananias, too, were slain with much misery, buried all near four miles east of this river, upon a small hill. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also. If a savage shows this to you, we promised you would give them great plenty presents. Hmm. And then it's signed, E-W-D, which ostensibly would be Eleanor White Dare. Again, I could see in a few years, if we're still doing this, I could see coming back and doing at least one full episode on the Dare Stones and this one in particular easily. It's a very fascinating story. But the problem was it got maligned by what happened from this point forward. This gentleman, Hayward Jefferson Pierce, wound up taking up the Dare Stones idea. And he was the founder of Brunel College, which is still around. This is in northeastern Georgia and is a, or at least was originally founded as a girls' college. I'm not sure if it still is. I imagine it might be. But this story winds up getting intertwined with him. And the unfortunate thing is that once it became clear that this stone got out there, this was a sensation. This was international news. 
And then they put out a reward for people to find more stones because they expected that there would be some that were corroborating this story. And people started bringing them in, one person in particular. And this gentleman knew other people that he could get to bring stones in, and he just kept bringing them in and selling them for $200. (laughs) And things got really badly taken out of proportion because it was, oh, these are all fakes. None of this is real. This is bunkum, and we need to discount every single one of the stones, including the first one. And the thing was that Pierce had probably displayed them at the college, so now they're hiding it and they're trying to pretend it never happened. That's everything in a nutshell. I've I've taken seriously at least two hours worth of story and, and taken it down to just a few minutes or a few sentences here. The gist of it is, though, that although all the following stones that came in and turned up, and there were many that had all kinds of varying degrees of stories, those were all disproven. The first one, that first one that Mr. Hammond brought in, they had a hard time disproving it. And one of the things that Lawler talks about is these experts that looked at it. One was a graffiti expert. Lawler tracked him down. His name was Matthew Champion. And he specialized in medieval graffiti. And what I thought, this was, this was his expertise. He would go to old churches and he would shine a flashlight sideways on these walls and on stones. And all these messages were uncovered that people actually never uh-huh. knew were there. So then he starts to learn about humanity, but he also starts to learn about the nature of the way that people carved things. Because people say, oh, well, you didn't talk that way or you didn't use this type of font And it turns out he's an expert on all of that stuff. And when he took a look at the dare stone, he said, you know what? I fully expected to be able to discount this and to be able to tell you that it was a fake or a forgery. And he said, but I can't really do that. And he then goes on to explain why the dare stone, the original one that was first brought in, was in fact a real artifact. However, there are other experts that came along later and they talk about the language on the stone as being cliche. And the biggest problem that most people have with it who are experts on the communication of the day was the initials, EWD. They explained that she wouldn't have left all three Mm. initials, probably her maiden name, which was White. Eleanor White Dare would have been left Mm -hmm. out of it. So there's some people that are like, they bump on that, as they say in Hollywood. What's wrong with the script? Well, I'm bumping on this. They bump on the EWD. There was another expert who had a problem with great plenty presence, comparing it in a joke way to heap plenty wampum, (laughs) making fun of, you know, old notions of how Native Americans might have spoke. But still, again, there's other experts that say no. And it's just like everything with this story. It's like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. That's absurd. They never would have said this. And then someone else says, yeah, they would have said it. So that's the dare stone. And then because of all the stuff that came along after it that dominated headlines for many, many months, it got relegated to the dustbin in terms of intellectually. And Lawler said himself that he was told by all the people that he was doing his research with, they were like, don't even talk about that. If you talk about that, you're not going to be taken seriously. And this is what I love about Lawler. He is, and someday he might hear this. I get that. And I'm I'm sure he's going to be like, who are these guys? Who are these bozos talking about this? But uh, I, what I want to say to him is, I love that you explored this angle, even though people told you not to, and people did wanted you to dissociate from it. Because a lot of times something that gets discarded there's some root to the mm-hmm. truth in there. It's just like when you watch Dateline or some show like that and about some uh, famous unsolved crime, and then you find out at the end of the game that they interviewed the main dude right there in the first 10 days. 
And this stone could be something like that. And I think that's a really fascinating part about the Dare Stones. Again, it's its own thing. Go look it up or get Lawler's book if you want to read more about it. There was a chemical analysis of the stone, too, that came back as oh, right. uh, not... It's puzzling, right? It wasn't totally debunked from that chemical analysis. Because the other thing that they said was that the aging in the cracks from where the chiseling had been done was consistent with the aging of the rest right. of the stone. So the implication was if it was a forgery, especially with this language that's on it and everything else that you take into it, the three initials from Eleanor Dare, then whoever forged it would have had to do a complex chemical treatment to it to get the crevices to be the right age and appearance to the rest of the stone. Or they would have had to leave it sitting around for hundreds of years. Yeah. Which, and I'm glad you brought that up for us because it reminded me of a point I wanted to make. There is always that possibility that a forgery or a hoax was created a long time ago near the beginning of an incident like this. And that somebody did that and said, oh, this will be funny. I'm going to do that. It's just like the guy that famously made all the Bigfoot tracks that we talked about in the Patterson-Gimlin film series. You know, yeah. there's always somebody's like, <laughs> and he does this, <laughs> well, and then he puts the rock in the mud, and then, right. you know, the next day he's riding a horse and he has a heart attack. And it's like, nobody finds the rock for 300 yeah. years. Then you find it and you're like, wait, this inscription's 300 years old. Does that mean it's real? Not conclusively, but... We can say that whatever was carved into that rock either underwent a complex chemical treatment. And also the other thing is that some of the information on it would have been hard to come by, especially before the internet. So there are folks who say, you know what, the Dare Stone, you can discount it. And it was an embarrassment at the time for Bernal College. But there is something to it. I feel like there's something to it, at least to me, after getting the big picture on it. Well, what do you feel about the story that's contained within it? Because here's where it's left is that there are, of course, a lot of historians that totally disregard all of them as being a hoax, but some believe that at least one or two of the stones may be genuine. But what do you think about the story that's contained thereupon these stones? Well, it's a fascinating story, and I think that it makes sense. It's no more or less conjecture or, I guess, uh, hard to believe than a lot of the other stories that come right. up, because all the other stories are by people that hadn't been there at all or didn't come or speculated from England about what happened or it's hearsay told from prominent Native American tribal members to people and then it went through the seashell game. So when you're <laughs> right. looking at this one and it's this rock that it might have been carved by an actual member, there's nothing on it that says, no, there's no way this could have happened. There is nothing yeah. about the story that says there's no way this could have happened. It's a thing that you can look at. This is physical evidence. And not to say that hoaxes, hoaxes have been around forever, Ed, just like graffiti apparently, been around yeah. forever. So... I think that the story of the stone is compelling, and I also think, based on the cursory research that we've done so far, that I'm certainly, well, I'm not qualified to be talking about any of this at all, but I'm also not ready to say whether or not I think the stone, the first stone, is real or not. Yeah. I'll tell you what I will say. I refuse at this point, based on what I know now and the research we've been doing, to dismiss it. I love old carvings and stones. There's always a rock. Or not. Yes. Well, it, makes me, it makes me think of the Peralta stones. Yes. When we talk about the Lost Dutchman mine. Oak Island. At least on the Cable series. Remember the commander? He found oh, a yes. stone that had a, uh, a Maltese cross on it, I believe. They could be done at the time. Uh, that's an interesting theory as well, uh, that it was a prankster at the time. And it ties in a little bit about what we're going to be talking about next. 
which is considered the most likely scenario by most historians in that someone at the time may have been carving out a false story to either put that out there as a prank. Look, there's always been pranksters and, and tricksters. And and in this case, somebody could have done it uh, back in the day, as they say, contemporaneously with the colony existing at some point, maybe to throw people off or to give an alternate version of a story of, well, this is what happened, put that to rest. And so with our final hypothesis that we're going to present and, and look over here, this is what people think is mystery solved. Here we go. This is the answer. This is what most historians have settled on. And it is the integration and assimilation hypothesis. Yes. Maybe approaching theory. We made our whole big speech about the, and I know this was from Amelia Earhart, about the difference between theory and hypothesis. And I found out later it had something to do with whether or not you were having an academic discussion about the topic. So my brother-in-law, Reverend Dr. Timothy Moore, who has a doctorate of ministry from Hood Theological Seminary and a master's in letters with a focus on theology and ethics from St. Andrews in Scotland, among other degrees, explained it as the following to me just today, quote, Theories are okay to use in both, and he means academic or non-academic situations. Hypothesis is a term more specifically linked to a scientific experiment. For instance, in the academic study of Christian theology, we study and consider the idea of, quote, atonement theories, end quote. These are not hypotheses that have been tested and then conferred from the category of speculation to the category of presumed fact. And, he adds, as an aside, in science, all facts are not absolute but probabilistic, i.e. presumed true until disproven. That movement from one catering of probability to more certainty is a processed limit to the scientific disciplines. Outside the scientific disciplines, the term theory is more generally applied to an agreed-upon and time-tested comprehensive idea of speculation on a given topic. It's always confusing, he adds, when multiple disciplines use the same term differently. I hope that helps. <laughs> so folks, I mean, it's still a little confusing, right? But the long and short of it is we were probably not using it the right way originally ourselves. So I'm just trying to set it straight. <laughs> Look, I would say 98% of all of this is casual conversation. That's and right. That's not what be we, used conversation for any academic purposes. But for this purpose, I think there are elements of provable points to a theory in that it's a little more solid than a hypothesis. And this one, as we'll see, I don't think you can say mystery solved, and most academics do not as well. But this is not a new hypothesis. This integration with local tribes hypothesis has been around since at least 1605. And it basically goes like this. If integration with local tribes was successful, the colonists would have used up their European supplies over time, things like ammunition for their guns. Clothing would eventually rot and wear off, you know, fall off you at some point, wear out. Their European culture would fade eventually. Things like language, their style of dress, the way they practiced agriculture. You would start to give up the ways you used to do it and take up the ways of your hosts. And in this case, as Algonquian culture became more convenient, you would start to adopt that. And forget your European ways, especially after a generation or two. So essentially, it's easier to live like the dominant culture you're in rather than try and hang on to your old way of life, especially if you're in small numbers. And at this point, a lot of the colonists may have died off, fell victim to violence, uh, natural causes, starvation, all those things, diseases. 
And so if you're a small number, it's like, we're going to still stay English here. Well, after a while, that's hard to keep up. That's, I think that's <laughs> kind of the point here. And here's another aspect to this integration assimilation hypothesis. It was known to Europeans, apparently, of the time, the colonial era, that Europeans who joined Native American culture, whether through capture or enslavement, they didn't seem to want to go back to European culture. I call this the little big man hypothesis. <laughs> you ever, if you've ever seen that movie with Dustin Hoffman, it's awesome. We've talked about it before. Yeah, it's one of our favorite uh, Westerns, I believe. So in that movie, Dustin Hoffman portrays Jack Crabb, who is of European origin and had adopted Native American ways of the crow. But is that character really true? Is, that, is the real-life person, Curly, who is Custer's a scout, actually of European descent? Nope. Dang it. <laughs> All right, you know what? Never mind. I'm still going to call it the little big man hypothesis. I don't care. I don't, you I don't can care call that it's it not that. totally accurate. I, I, All right. I, I didn't know this until we started looking into this just now, but uh, Curly was, in fact, a Native American, which would right. indicate that Little Big Man, the movie that we love so much, is, again, another yeah. case of whitewashing a Native American story <laughs> oh, dear. by making Dustin Hoffman play a crow scout still, but the thing that's interesting about Curly he has his own Wikipedia page here. It's uh, oh. Wikipedia.org. Curly C U R L Y. That's not the actual URL. Just Google it. I see how that works. Okay, but it's up there. Um, is that the stories that he told about witnessing Custer's last stand are the stories that yes. make up the basis of the story? So what he saw is what is portrayed in the movie. It just was portrayed by Dustin Hoffman instead of a someone of crow descent. Look, it still has one of my favorite character actors, Chief Dan George. So you're it not going to take that away from me. He still has uh, the movie, honestly. <laughs> he, he really does. He does. <laughs> he does. And and uh, the outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, just yeah. you, can't, you can't beat him. But actually, I can tie this back in with the converse of that apparent phenomena, as we said, known to Europeans of the era. Rarely did Native Americans want to be fully integrated with European culture. So the reverse of that doesn't seem to be as true. Sometimes, of course, that happens. And I don't know if Curly said like, but I love this uh, European white man living. Or he was just a scout because that was a good job for him and he was good at it. But I just see it as those silly European collar roughs look really uncomfortable. Yeah. Why not choose the simpler lifestyle? So the reasonable conclusion here is that the assimilated colonists or their descendants really wouldn't care to go back to European society or even seek it out once they had left it. That is the writing principle of this assimilation theory is that Europeans who somehow out of necessity for survival, who assimilated into Native American tribes, eventually just liked it and, and adapted, even if they were captured or enslaved. And so most modern historians believe that this assimilation hypothesis is the most likely scenario for the colonists' survival. But which tribe or tribes did they integrate with? Doesn't answer that question. Well, and I'm glad that you brought this up because I almost forgot this is a point I wanted to make connected to our opening quote from tonight by Benjamin Franklin. No European who has tasted savage life can afterwards bear to live in our societies, end quote. 
So I went further on that, and I actually found it in an author's book. Uh, his name's Bruce Elliott Johansson, and I'm going to read a description on him from Wikipedia here. He's an American academic and author. He is the Frederick W. Kaiser Professor of Communication at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and is the author or editor of many books and articles, notably on environmental and Native American issues. This is a fascinating guy. There's a couple of YouTube clips of him talking online, but he wrote this book called Forgotten Founders. This came out in 1982. Forgotten Founders, How the American Indian Helped Shape Democracy from the Harvard Common Press. This book is a serious point of contention for some people who do not want to think of the idea of Native Americans contributing to democracy. But if you look at Johansson's clips on YouTube, for example, one of the first things he says is like, look, I'm not trying to say you can discard the Greek contributions to democracy or, or the Egyptians yeah. or all these other ones that came along. All I'm saying is that Native Americans brought something to the table. One group, even if they're dominant, takes something away from the less dominant group. There's always an exchange of ideas. Right. So I want to read this little section from Forgotten Founders where Johansson is reading a quote from uh, a gentleman named Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R, who wrote a book called Poor Richard's Politics, and that's uh, T-I-C-K-S, came out in 1965. I'm not sure on the page number. I'm sorry. That's the best I can do on the reference, but we'll have a link to it in our show notes. <laughs> oh, got to remind me to, to do that. Yes. I just did. Franklin okay. could not help but admire the proud, simple life of America's native inhabitants, wrote Connor in Poor Richard's Politics in 1965. There was a noble quality in the stories, which he told of their hospitality and tolerance, of their oratory and pride. Franklin, said Connor, saw in Indians conduct, quote, a living symbol of simplicity and happy mediocrity, exemplifying essential aspects of the virtuous order. Depiction of this healthful primitive morality could be instructive for transplanted Englishmen, still doting on foreign gigaws. Happiness, Franklin wrote, is more generally and equally diffused among savages than in our civilized societies. Uh, by the way, I just want to uh, reiterate here that at this time, savages was more of a noun. It wasn't taken as a derogatory term back then. It was just how they were describing Indians, which again is another term that some tribes are okay <laughs> with just, and others aren't. I'm, it's the I'm qualifying show. everything. Yes, yes it's the, the qualifying show. show. Yes, there I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that we, people understand we're quoting things here. Anyway, I think this is fascinating because it's taking a look at all this, and I, I'm very interested in Forgotten Founders by Johansson. I actually ordered a paperback copy of that, and it's on its way to me now. Because one of the things that he was saying, and when I, and I looked into this a little bit, was that even though they had ideas about democracy when they got here, the founders were able to look at the association of tribal nations and take something away from the way those were being run and bring that to the table when they started to establish this country. And this is the right. issue. This will probably get us more emails than anything we've ever said <laughs> on the show. But I'm sharing somebody else's point of view. However, it does, I'll go ahead and say it makes sense to me. Well, it does make sense to me anyway, but if you're looking at the question of which tribes the Roanoke colonists had integrated with, there are some thoughts about that. Circumstantial evidence states that the Hatteras tribe of the 1700s came from the Croatan previously. The modern Roanoke Hatteras tribe claimed to be descendants of the Hatteras and thus both the original Croatan tribe and the lost colonists. So there have been stories about encounters with white-skinned, fair-skinned, blonde-haired people that were Native American within their tribes as early as 1607. That's why I said this thing goes way back and people just assume that they were part of the lost colonists, possibly. But 
Something that Andrew Lawler says is that possibly that can be explained by higher rates of albinism in Native Americans than in people of European descent. Yeah, you could see fair-skinned people with really light-colored hair, but that might be due to the albino trait. Now, there were Native tribes that were in the era, the contemporary era of the Roanoke colonists, that were thought to be connected to Croatan peoples. The Machapunga inhabited areas in the 1700s that were marked on some maps of the mainland from 100 years earlier as being Croatoan. The Kori, remember we just mentioned them about the tree, yes. the Kora tree? The Kori and Catawba tribes were rumored to be connected to the Croatan. And legends were common in eastern North Carolina about the Croatan migrating to other areas and with some believing that a few extant traces like names and language elements can be connected to the Roanoke colonists. So those ideas have been around for a long time that support or point to this idea of assimilation. Hi, I'm Susan Kamen from St. Louis, Missouri. And when I'm not haunting the Limp Mansion, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So as we round the bend here on the close of part two, got to talk about the actual site and locations. And let's take a look at the modern archaeology and research happening. What's been going on? What has happened? I, I know we've had some listeners after part one aired are wondering about DNA. What have they found? Bits and pieces that can be tied to the lost colony. Well, the fort location in 1701 that John Lawson investigated eventually became Fort Raleigh National Historic Site. And I think if you look on the map, Scott, it's, it's at the north end of the island there on Roanoke? Yes, it is. Yeah, well, that all came to pass when the National Park Service took it over in 1941. But if you back up, by the late 1800s, the site had become a tourist attraction. So you don't need the National Park Service to designate that. Locals will come tour it. People here, uh, they want to go check it out for themselves. That's what was happening, I think, by the 1860s or so. And all that was left, though, of the original fort that John Lawson had come upon in 1701 was a bulwark-shaped earthwork that had holes dug all over it by trophy hunters. So people knew about the story. They're trying to find some artifacts themselves, take home and put on their mantles. The area was further deteriorated by road construction, and there was, of course, even a film shot there, Scott, a silent film from 1921 called The Lost Colony. And man, you, oh, if yeah, you know anything, never that. let a That's film crew amazing. into your house. No. Yeah. I don't care how much they <laughs> offer you for the location. No. You yeah. know what's funny about that? Can you just imagine? That's so, I mean, you and I both studied film, so it's just amazing. The first talkie was 1927, and a lot of that stuff was happening in California. Can you imagine? Like in 1921, they're out yeah. here on this tiny island doing The Lost Colony as a silent film? I wonder if that film survived. On survives. location. It might not survive. A lot of them don't survive, so... Yeah, the nitrate films uh, yeah. didn't survive. They deteriorate themselves. They took these big, bulky cameras, went out on the island, so they're right on location, location filming here. But, of course, that also damaged the site. So what was left of the earthwork was restored to its original dimensions beginning in the 1950s. So that's kind of what we're left with. It's been somewhat preserved, but, of course, like anything else in history, has been damaged by other people, but also erosion and weather conditions and just the sea itself. So now we're going to look at archaeological evidence that's been uh, discovered here, starting in 1887, and that is with 
Talcott Williams, who was a journalist, an American journalist, who discovered a Native American burial site. And Talcott Williams returned in 1895 to do some excavation, but he didn't really find anything. And later excavations, with some compelling finds, would happen in the 1990s by Ivor Noel Hume. But as we're going to see, none of it can really be positively linked to the colony in question, the missing one from 1587, in comparison with the earlier outpost from 1585. That's the big distinction here. Those people didn't go missing in 1585. They got run out of there. Yeah, but they definitely left stuff behind. And that comes back to the idea that if you find something that is definitively connected to the lost colony, then you have to find, for example, a woman, because there were no women in exactly. the first expedition. And if you find someone that's been buried, you find them in a straight position as opposed to the Native Americans would bury their dead in a more fetal position. And on top of that, thanks to the ruling, which we talked about, I think we talked about this during Black Eyed Kids, I can't remember. But when any archaeologist uncovers a Native American burial, they have to just stop. And so in yeah. 99% of the time, when they contact the Native American authorities, they say, rebury it now, no research, nothing. Right. So if you're not finding a woman whose body is lying in a straight position, you're not finding a direct connection to the lost colony. That's one example. And buried according to Christian tradition, as you said, supine, with the east-west orientation, that's how right. people were buried that's back right. then. That's right, I left the direction out, thank you. Sir. Yeah, and that has to be dated to 1650 or before, because at that point, there were Europeans in that specific region. So it's a very specific set of conditions to find some artifacts left that would more definitively point to the lost colony. These could possibly have come from the 1585 colony or from Native Americans who were doing some usual trading with other European settlements at the time. So you don't know where these artifacts came from. So as we said before, Hurricane Emily had uncovered a number of Native American items, I believe along Cape Creek in Buxton, and a ring was found, a gold signet ring at the time. In 1995, by David Sutton Phelps Jr., and so this caused a lot of excitement. Here you have a ring, because it's a signet ring with a family crest on it that could possibly be tied to the Kendall family and their heraldry in the 16th century. But here's the problem with that. Phelps at the time didn't do any studies or papers on it, and the ring itself was not thoroughly examined until 2017, when an x-ray analysis showed that this ring is not gold, it's brass. So that cuts out a lot of connections to somebody of higher landed gentry status with a family herald and more of a solid connection to one of the Roanoke families. Here's the interesting thing. He took that ring when he dug it up and he said, hey, check this out. And the, and the uh, gentleman who assayed it was like, oh, it's gold. But later, I think it was Lawler who actually found the guy. I'm not sure if it was. I can't remember now from Lawler's book, but it, this information is definitely in his book. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, I, I just took a quick look at it. I didn't really ascertain whether it was gold or not. And yeah. Phelps' whole career was based on this gold signet ring. Turns out right. it's not gold. It's a cheaper one. And it, it still came from overseas. There's no question. But sure. it becomes a whole lot harder thing to track. And this is what happens with about all the evidence. Everybody's like, well, look what I found. And they hold a tiny thing yeah. in their hand. And then it's like, that's cool. There's no way this was made here. But yeah. there's about a thousand different ways it could have got here. It's like watching Antiques Roadshow. 
it's yeah. of, of course value is <laughs> not if well there were a hundred thousand of these made in even if it was fifteen hundred eh, that's spread out pretty good it's not that rare so it's not that valuable and in this case because the ring is brass like well it makes it a lot more anonymous and could have arrived in the Virginia Territory much, much later. Could have been a trade from a Spanishman who had come to the area and was trying to get information from a, a Native American and said, hey, here, take this. Or it could have been anything. So yeah. it didn't have heraldry. It didn't say, oh, this is from the White family or whoever. It's Again, it's inconclusive. So another factor to consider it with archaeology and maybe a reason why they're not finding much is the weather, the climate, and the erosion, as we said before, it's likely that some portions or maybe a lot of these settlements are now underwater and have covered up any graves or remains or a lot of artifacts. That's just another scientific consideration that's out there. Not just the water, the current, the shifting sand, everything, you know, not only does it get covered up, it goes down into the sand, the sand gets pushed. It's just like the Gulf Stream is with water, the sand can be that way too. So uh, yeah. artifacts that are that have gone under the ocean, then the sand gets pushed around. They could be half a mile away for all you know. So as we talked about previously, there are a couple of National Geographic articles uh, from Andrew Lawler. One is from June of 2018 entitled, It Was America's First English Colony, Then It Was Gone. Two decades before Jamestown, settlers arrived in what is now North Carolina. What happened to them is a mystery, but there are some clues. I don't know if that's the whole title. That's what's on the website. But here's the thing. This is just one of the articles which talks about the current state, at least as of June 2018, about the archaeology. And so it's a good one to look at about who's doing what, where. And it kind of leaves us here on our final point. There are two sites, and this is fascinating because it ties in a little bit with an integration assimilation hypothesis. So there are two teams here, Mark Horton, who's an archaeologist from the University of Bristol, and he works with a local organization, the Croatoan Archaeological Society, and they have annual digs that they sponsor where Mark Horton is the leader, and they he gets volunteers to do the sifting and all the hard work, and people gladly do because they're trying to find something. And so they found some pretty fascinating items here. A rapier, which is a thin foil type of sword, it's not the big... English broadsword. So they found a rapier with a handle, and you can see pictures of that. Also, some scraps of European copper, the barrel of a gun, some lead shot, and one of the more remarkable pieces, it's a piece of drawing slate that still had a lead pencil near it. And on the top corner, I believe, is the letter M that's still somewhat visible. And this drawing slate is something that Horton believes may have belonged to John White himself, who used to sketch scenes of Native Americans and Native Americans themselves. Yeah, it's like a little chalkboard. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's something that an artist wouldn't use, of course, uh, for final stuff. It sounds to me more like something that you would uh, make notations on rather than something an artist would make sketches on. But you can see where the thinking is going here, that these items most likely or hopefully belong to at least part of the group of the lost Roanoke colonists. Yeah, the rapier, by the way, was found in a trash pit, but it's a Native American trash pit. 
So yeah. again, here we are. Oh, it's a rapier. It's Elizabethan. Yeah, but it's in a Native American trash pit. So was it traded? Was it offered to someone during a ceremony? There's all kinds of things that could account for its origins. And here's a quote in the article by Horton to kind of temper this. <laughs> he says, quote, I would never argue that they all end up here, Horton says of the colonists, but this is where they would be welcomed and supported. I suspect they would have sent the women and children here. It's almost certain this would be where Virginia Dare turns up, end quote. So correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but I believe he is at a site on Croatoan Island where that's where the carved message said they went. Yes, that's a thing. There's a lot of digs going on in a lot of different places. So this sounds really promising. However, the article goes on to say that, uh, well, a lot of these objects... They seem to be Elizabethan, but found with other items that, uh, quote, likely date to more than a half century after White's failed rescue attempt. Uh, this is a quote from Horton. It's deeply problematic that this stuff turns up two generations later, he admits. And Horton's speculation is that, well, maybe the older Elizabethan objects were just kept by the children or grandchildren of the abandoned settlers who then had assimilated with the Croatone. But even some members of his own team say, well, again, these items could have arrived with later English settlements. So it's really cool that it puts us closer to maybe finding out what happened, and maybe that answer is still buried in the dirt waiting to be discovered. So now we come to the one that a lot of people who follow this have probably already heard about, because this was a big deal just a few years ago. There was a gentleman named Brent Lane who was teaching heritage economics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It may still be teaching there. He grew up fascinated by Lost Colony legends, and he had a modern copy of White's watercolor map of the area. And in 2011, nine years ago, he became curious about two faint patches on his copy. And uh, the British Museum, <laughs> it's funny, this is crazy. He had reached out to them about it what are these patches? And they were so used to cranks calling with crazy theories about the lost colony that they didn't even get back to him for a minute. They were just like, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's another, it's another, it thinks yeah. a spaceship, but he kept after it. And so when the curators put this particular painting, the original on a light table, three months later, they found that there was a star shaped symbol of a fort under this patch. And this is what's interesting about these patches. Patches were common in the day because what would happen is if you made a mistake on some really detailed drawing, especially the quality level that uh, John White stuff was at, you don't want to redo the whole thing and you didn't right. have white out. There was no way to fix it. We didn't have computers. So what they would do is they would take a piece of paper and patch it on top and then draw over it the corrected area. But what they started to realize was that under this patch, there was something. And what they saw when they put it on the light table was a star-shaped symbol of a fort under this patch. It took me a couple of readings to fully understand this, but just to be clear, Brent Lane had a copy of this map on which yes. the copy showed a patch. It wasn't the actual patch. He didn't like right. luck on to a, a 1500 yes. map, but yeah. he then contacted the British Museum who had the original right. to actually look at it. And then yes. they, they saw that there was a faint outline of something that may have looked like a fort, right? Written in exactly. what could be invisible ink at the time made of, what's gone? Wait, <laughs> so invisible <laughs> ink is, invisible ink is made of P to answer that question. Okay. The, yeah. Cause there is the fort. There's two things going on. There's the yes. fort 
thing, but then there's also the invisible ink, which yes, yes would have been made of urine. And the urine was uh, used to make this ink would only come out under certain conditions. So, and the point so of this speak. was, yes, yeah, so to speak. And Lawler said this kind of uh, espionage and trickery was common at the time. And I think he said in his book somewhere that there was, quote, nothing romantic about it. It was literally about just staying alive because yeah. there were so many ways that if you got caught with the wrong paperwork or the wrong thing got out, you know, next thing you know, you're you're drawn and quartered or what? there's horrible things that can happen to you. So people had expertise in this. And one of them that had expertise in it is someone that we have been mentioning all along, Harriet, who was part of the colony settlement, the, the really smart polymath that we talked about who had expertise across all fields. There's no reason to believe that he wouldn't have known how to use invisible ink. So then we get into this new question of like, why is there a fort here in this position? And where is this position, by the way? I don't think we've made that clear. It's near the center of the map. Essentially, if you were to follow the original idea of we move 50 miles into the main, that's where it is. So then we get into this, it opens up this whole can of worms about maybe they actually did move into the mainland. And this, could this have been where they went? Well, it does match. Whites mentioned that the colonists had planned, quote, 50 miles into the main at the head of Albemarle Sound, 50 miles away from Roanoke. That also coincides with the idea that they were originally told White that they were going to go to that location. And also, yeah, you could take a look at the patch and that it wasn't hiding a mistake. It was a secret code, a, a secret token, you could say, that underneath was a star that resembled a fort with a patch over the top of that. And then in that invisible pee-pee ink, that's going to be a meme. <laughs> <laughs> Invisible PP. Yeah, I just threw that out there because you I, can't know. People have to trend. make it a meme. You can't ask them to make a meme. They just no. I know do you. It. It's, I Invisible understand. Invisible PP like, ink. I, we, we will at least see it in the Facebook group with any luck. <laughs> Everyone's hashtag. stuck at home, right? So that's yeah. what they're doing. Invisible PP ink. <laughs> the point of this though is that this was a little bit startling and shocking. It was some clue now that, uh, and this is. I also love the idea that lost clues are found in, in parchment and, and maps that have been kind of forgotten or it's been revealed recently. So here's the idea with this. The archaeologists from the First Colony Foundation, it's a North Carolina nonprofit dedicated to Roanoke-related archaeology. Well, they went to go check out this location on the map here, and they focused on this piece of land. It's a cove that would be perfect, they thought, from hiding from Spanish scouts, which they know now, as we just said previously, they were on the lookout for some kind of secret English pirate base, but they never found it. And in light of all this secret uh, pirate treasure map kind of stuff, they decided to call the site Site X. Best name I've ever heard. So the archaeologist heading up that dig at Site X is a Virginian named Nicholas Lucchetti. And some of the things that he's found is an aglet, which is a, it's a tiny tube that I guess at the end of wool lace, it's used to keep it from fraying. Yes. To but secure they're... the end. Yes, and one of the things Lawler says about those in that particular finding is that they're nearly impossible to date because they were made over a long range. There's yeah, exactly. there's no way to tell when they were manufactured or necessarily how old they are or when they came over. Right, and that's called an aglet. And something else that's an L-shaped piece of metal that was used possibly to stretch out the edge of an animal skin or a tent. Uh, something else that was found was a brass buckle and a lead seal, which could be of Elizabethan times. But Lucchetti believes his big find are some bits of broken pottery. And this pottery that he found is called borderware because it was traditionally made on the border between 
Surrey and Hampshire counties in southern England, somewhere there on the county boundary line. As in the article says, it's not much to look at, and Lucchetti kind of knows that, but his point is that, well, the mundane nature of this is what makes it important. If it was a pretty object, then the Indians might collect it, but in this case, it was left where it was because the Native Americans really didn't find it all that attractive or need it. So Lucchetti feels, he's pretty sure he found a, a piece of a bowl used by one of the lost colonists, as he says, quote, we think this is where they came after Governor White left. You see, Scott, this points to a little bit of what you were saying earlier is that you've spent a lot of time finding the bits that you have, and you're pretty confident about it because it represents all this time and this thinking and this idea here. And Lucchetti is basing his hunch on the argument that Jamestown settlements had a lot of border wear, a lot of this type of pottery here. But over the years, that amount of pottery declined. So by the time that English colonists arrived at Site X, which would be about 1660, this border ware was pretty rare. But in this site, they're finding a lot of it. This is another thing I want to read a little section from Lawler's book on. This is from page 227. And my hat's off to this guy. He managed to put this meeting together between Horton and Lachetti in Noel Hume's living room in what he calls a Tony suburb of Williamsburg. So Noel Hume at this point being in his 90s, this is the old guard meeting the new guard that we alluded to earlier. I just want to read this section to you from page 227 of Lawler's book. One summer afternoon, I maneuvered Horton and Lucchetti into Noel Hume's elegant living room in a tony suburb of Williamsburg to sort out flotsam from solid proof. Nearly 90, the archaeologist sat ramrod straight in a chintz wing chair with a view of the broad James River. He listened closely as the two younger archaeologists took turns deferentially laying out their findings. Horton and Lucchetti had only met the day before. Beneath their veneer of polite academic detachment, I sensed mutual disdain. It was as though two <laughs> lawyers stood before a judge, each making his case. Noel Hume asked the occasional question, his palms pressed together. When they were done, the only man to have successfully broken the Roanoke curse shook his head, unconvinced that either of the excavators had nailed the case of the lost colony. Quote, you both have a lot of work to do, he said. So uh, it actually goes on to say the possibility remained open that both Lucchetti and Horton were right. Governor White seemed convinced the settlers went to Croatoan, but made a point of mentioning twice the plan to move 50 miles inland. Lucchetti didn't claim that all the settlers went to Site X, only some fraction of the group, perhaps a half dozen colonists. On that, he and Horton agreed. There are arguments about where to go and what to do, Horton speculated after we left. The council condemns someone, another is exiled. I think internal discipline broke down. Some were starving. The clever ones say, bugger this, we're going to move in with the local Indians here. When you look at the possibilities, you have to think about the fractious nature of a devolving situation. It's like a drama. Any group, uh, as you see, especially like in a Twilight Zone episode, like, we're going to go back to the ship. It's like, we're not, this is the way. There's always tension, at least dramatically, and that's what, the way humans are. Not everybody agrees they're going to all go do the same thing. So in this case, we don't know. It brings up an interesting point. If artifacts are being found at these two locations, possibly one group of the original Roanoke settlers stayed on Croatone, as they said they were going to, hopefully to be found by John White. But after a while, they assimilated. The other group, for whatever reason went off on their own and headed to the head of Albemarle Sound. And then eventually, bringing some stuff with them, eventually they assimilated to the Native American tribes 
and those pieces were left behind. So they both could be areas where the original colony had had found themselves and just dissipated. But the challenge of this idea, though, is that these items that you found, some actual direct proof, they have to be ruled out because they could have been left by the 1585 Ralph Lane colony. Or these could have been items that were found at the trading post that was established by Nathaniel Batts in the 1650s. So in summation with the archaeology, even though you find some really compelling items at supposed locations, some likely locations, until you have something really solid, you can't connect those to the very specific year and group of people. So now we look at what science could actually tie some finds to people actually living in 1587 on Roanoke, and that would be DNA. And so I've seen a lot of comments as well, people saying, well, well, why can't we just get DNA from any bones found or from any human remains and then tie that in with possible descendants? Well, the problem is there have been no bones found as of yet that you can do DNA analysis on. Now, computer scientist Roberta Estes, since about 2005, has been looking into doing DNA analysis because she is interested in the 1587 colony and trying to find a genetic link. Yeah, her father is actually from northeastern North Carolina, so she has Native American genes on both sides of her family, actually. Yeah, exactly. And for those of you who know the science, I guess autosomal DNA is unreliable. And again, I'm just reading from the wiki entry on this. Uh, That's unreliable because so little of the colonists' genetic material would remain after five or six generations. But you can do some testing on Y chromosomes and mitochondrial DNA, which is more reliable over longer periods of time. So now the challenge, though, is to obtain a genetic point of comparison. So there you go. You got to find some remains of a lost colonist or a definite descendant of one of them. And as we said, at the time of this recording, neither of those have been able to be located. Right. So what Roberta did was she went down there and she put out the word that she wanted to collect DNA evidence from the Lumbee tribe, which is yes. a tribe that is there now. And this tribe has had a tough time economically and also culturally, both locally and on the national stage. It was difficult for her to get people to contribute to it because in much the way that they feel about disturbing the graves of their ancestors, they kind of feel that way a little bit about sharing DNA as well. Where is this yeah. going? They're, they're interested in privacy and the sacred idea of what's going on with their ancestors. But there were some members of the tribe who were interested in participating in her project. So she started putting things together. But again, collecting that evidence, it's just kind of sitting there waiting for something to compare it to. And this is another thing that comes up all the time when you're looking at these kinds of mysteries. What are we going to compare this to? And they are gathering it together. And there's good reason to think that they do have some components of the lost colonists mixed in with who they are. In fact, there was actually a Lumbee Indian named Henry Barry Lowry, who was sort of a vigilante. He was seen kind of as a Robin Hood, and he was known to have gray eyes himself. And here's what's interesting about him. I mean, just right here on the front of it, his middle name was Barry. 
Mm-hmm. And Barry yeah. is one of the last names of one of the original colonists. So you're getting into this connection here. And there's a lot of these names that have come down through the Lumbee tribe. By the way, that's a newer name for them. Their tribe has gone through several names over the years. And you can read all about this in Lawler's book and online. We have a webpage that connects to their, that's their official tribal webpage, which we will have in our show notes. But you look at these names and you see that they are possibly directly connected to colonists or they could be a change in the name. And there was one historian who since passed away who was Lumbee Indian. His last name was Dial. And within his family, he had uh, understood it to be a variation of Dare. So Mm. there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on there, which leads me to my conclusions, Forrest. If you don't mind, I'll lead into them a little bit here. We've only done cursory research and we're only, uh, to use a term I haven't used in a while, we're temporary experts on anything that we talk about. And I use the word expert loosely, as even with the word temporary in front of it. But I really do think that the assimilation, them moving off and moving in with Native Americans in the area and blending in and uh, becoming part of the tribes, I just think it makes the most sense. And I think the real question marks there when you look back on it are whether or not everybody made it or only a tiny number of people made it when they did that. Because again, you have to consider it's, it's three years before that resupply came and they knew they were being watched. I had the idea that maybe when White's ship returned, there could have been survivors there could have been part of the ones watching them and putting up the smoke, but also deciding, you know what, I don't necessarily want to reconnect with them for a variety of different reasons. It could be fear. It could also be I don't want to go back to that life or, and I don't know which one of those things it is. And I'm not presupposing to know. I'm just saying that it makes sense to me that they all merged into the local indigenous people. And as a result, you could say that colony in a way might've worked in something that they had anticipated. It, it, It wasn't that it was a failure. It was a failure, I guess, governmentally and politically, but in terms of people coming over and becoming part of a new world, I think they might've done it more than the other folks did. So there's a lot to consider there. And when I think about it, it's interesting to me because I've looked at the manifest of a lot of the colonists and Mm -hmm. the Lumbee are, a lot of them are centered around the Albemarle area that you've mentioned, which is not in the Northeast, but it's a few uh, miles inland. But uh, I have some of my own family members are from that area. And one of the names in my family tree is the man name. And M-A-N-N. Yeah, it's M-A-N-N, but there was a man on the, in the lost colony who was never found. It's completely plausible that uh, my own son has a connection to some of these colonists if you follow this theory. And that only just occurred to me today, frankly. And I'm not trying to claim (laughs) it. It was like, oh, look, it's all about me. That's not what I'm saying at all. A lot more research would have to be done. But that brings me to my last point and my last conclusion about Mm. this. This may be an unsolvable mystery, and it may just always be that. And Mm. that's the thing about it. This, a lot of things have changed. A lot of people have come and gone since then. There's been erosion, not only of the land, but of cultures. Uh, There's been a mingling of cultures and so much time has passed and so many different things have happened. And on top of that, it's happening in a in a place where there is radical weather and wind and rain, and it's a dangerous place for shipping. And when you think about all the history of the area and all the other things, and we didn't even talk about the Maroons, which is a whole nother interesting thing about uh, freed slaves who've gone deep into the dismal swamp to live yeah, and hide yeah. out. 
that's a whole nother possibility for not just members of the colonies, but it also could be for some of those folks that Drake dropped off that also disappeared, that other hundred people that we don't know where they went, that he pulled out of St. Augustine but did not make it back to England. Those folks could be in there somewhere as well. And then when it starts to get that complicated, it becomes exponentially more diverse and uh, good luck tracking it all down. you That's the point at which you really do have to fall back on oral history and what people believe. And I don't know who anybody is to say that something is or isn't true. Well, let me ask you this. Have you taken one of those DNA tests? I have members of my family that have. I have not personally taken one because I had privacy concerns, but uh-huh. I'm, I'm interested in doing it. But I would not be blood related to these particular folks. This would be on my wife's side of the family. Uh, I see. So I know how my peeps came over already. I do know that because <laughs> my family tree goes back to the year 235, if you can believe that, on wow. Ancestry.com. Yeah. Wow. That is um, a really old and crumbly uh, marriage certificate. Probably, uh, yeah. I'm somewhere. sure it's replete with mistakes, but it's it, there are connections you can make. It's very fascinating. But still, I think that the most likely explanation is, and and I think politically, they were like, and I said this, I alluded to this earlier, it was easier to say, oh, they're lost, they disappeared, as opposed to they went off and, you know, they went native on us. That may be what they did, and it wasn't politically acceptable, and we need to move on to the next mission to establish a colony here. So we're going to say that they vanished, even though they might not really have vanished, they might have just blended in with what they found here, especially after they had been abandoned for several years. So that's where I'm at on all of it, Forrest. Uh, What about you, man? What are your closing thoughts? Well, what I like about this story of the lost colonists of Roanoke is that it may be the very first mystery of what would eventually become known as the United States of America. On the other hand, to the lost colonists, it may not have been a mystery at all, if you know what I'm saying here, unless they went the way of those missing for paranormal reasons. Consider this, they may have died from violence, which was a constant worry that they had unfortunately become familiar with and wary of, or died from disease or starvation, or they may have simply lived out their lives in a most unnatural fashion as best they could, a simple, honest life in the wilderness. And if Virginia Dare lived beyond childhood, maybe she grew up never knowing a European existence, but only a Native American lifestyle. Maybe she had a family of her own, and none of her heirs would know the difference once their origin story was forgotten. I wonder what she would think about simply her name and the idea of her existence becoming a different symbol for so many for centuries after. That would probably blow her mind. So maybe the lost colony of Roanoke experienced tragedy, as they certainly experienced hardship at least long enough for their tastes, but maybe they came to know contentment. If this story is tragic for anyone, it it must be for these surviving family members and the most tragic for poor John White. I mean, imagine leaving your family, your daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter, let alone 115 people you were responsible for, in an already dangerous and difficult landscape. Every day for three years, he must have worried if everyone was okay and not being able to return to find out. And once he does... All he's met with is a mystery and heartbreak. So perhaps John White had an inkling that he might one day contribute to history through his adventures, or as he thought of them, the evils and unfortunate events that haunted his final years, or perhaps he just saw them as tragic failures. But what we can thank John White for, in exchange for all his misery and loss, 
is that his artwork remains a rare glimpse in a Native American culture of the 16th century, and his story is part of the origin story of the United States of America. That's going to wrap up our series on the Lost Colony of Roanoke. We were already scheduled to be dark for the next two weeks, but we'll be back after that with three new shows. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Susan Kamen. I'm Rob from Cape Breton Island. Hi, I'm Leighton Steer. Astonishing legends. T-O-N in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>